Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode two of the I Eat Movies podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike Kenny in New Jersey, and joining me in the Westchester area, my man Dino. <laughs> uh, my, name, my name is Dino. I, you know, I'm living the dream, man. What can I say? Welcome back to I Eat Movies. We, we, ain't, hung, we, ain't, we ain't satisfied yet. We're still hungry. So this I is episode you. two. Thank you so much for everybody who checked out episode one. Uh, as we as we continue to figure out what the hell we're doing, indeed, <laughs> as we navigate this uh, this over Skype, uh, you know these these tech issues that we have. I I think all things considered, we're doing pretty well with it, if I do say so myself. But you're just asking for negative feedback right now. But carry <laughs> on, that's fine. I'll just dig your I'm, own I'm grave. I'm hoping for it because I have to say, just to reiterate what uh, Dino said, uh, thank you to everybody who tuned in to our first supersized edition of I Eat Movies. That was a hoot and a half. We went, I think, two and a half hours nearly. Um, a great tribute to our uh, to our fallen comrade, Mike McBeardo McPadden. Um, again, I you know I know that we uh, we uh, kind of. Um, we promoted it quite a bit on our social media channels, but again, that GoFundMe page for Mike and his loved ones is still going on, so we really want to encourage uh, each and every one of you to contribute. Uh, if you can, that would be great, but again, it we were so humbled with that reception that we got. I mean, just a tremendous amount of people tuned in, and with the... Um, with all the feedback, you know, just all of like the statistics that you get of everything, it was it was incredible to see that every nearly everybody that tuned in listened to the episode in its entirety. I'm and a little thrown off. <laughs> yeah, it's no easy feat. We talk a lot. I'm a little thrown off that 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 so many people like us this much. I think we have to try a little bit harder to, to irritate people. I think um, so. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get there, folks. We'll get there. So, by the way, this, this before we you know we're, we'll get into it in a second, but we are focusing. Uh, yeah, so last episode we we, we, we eulogized uh, a guy who tragically died too early. This episode we're focusing on two bleak prison dramas. So whatever direction we've set up for ourselves, I'm thinking next time we should each drink a, a lot of codeine and then maybe yeah. engage in self-harm. That might be the theme for the whole episode because look, look at what we, we set things up so far. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I definitely, this seemed like the natural place to go, right? This is definitely seemed to go, uh, you know, behind bars, if you will. Um, but yeah, very excited to talk about it because uh, as we, you know, kind of mentioned at the tail end of uh, our first episode, me and Dino are big, big prison film fans. So we're both uh, equally excited to talk about our two selections uh, today. Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, are we going straight to, to, to the movies or did you want to, uh, I mean, I just, you know, if you wanted to catch up on anything, how are you doing, sir? <laughs> how am I, how am I, how am I doing? I'm, uh, I, I'm in this COVID world surprise and co in this very cold COVID world where we're actually getting a little bit uh, of real snow. I'm kind of impressed by real winter. Um, no, I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, I'm excited. I am excited to talk about movies. I'm always excited to talk to you about this stuff. Um, yeah. So I don't. I don't even remember. How did we get? I, we got into the topic of prison movies and how we both seem to really like them. What is it? What is it you like about prison movies? Uh, you know, that's an interesting thing because it, it's a it's a unique and very interesting subgenre. Uh, 
in itself. So I should make I should make the point. Um, when I say prison movies, because uh, this is the, you know, I made a whole list of prison prison movies, and I, I'm going to get to it in a second. But we sure say prison did. movies. Well, it's but it's barely anything, and it stop. I made a list that stops uh, at 2000, like like a lot of good things tend to. Um, but I only went to 2000. <laughs> but there's so many. There's so much within. The con- the construct of movies that have something to do with prison, and um, the ones we're, the one the two we're going to talk about today are are men's uh, prison dramas, and uh, there's so many other uh, prison movies, especially one of Mike's favorite, the women in prison genre, which we're not. Well, go ahead, Mike. Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. We're not we're not going to be touching. Um that barrel of fire just yet because that is an episode if not multiple episodes uh in and of itself but um yeah i mean you know prison films in general it is a really unique and uh very different kind of subgenre to gravitate to but i i mean i think in its simplest form the reason that uh, at least I gravitate to it. it. It's because it's it's a world that most people know nothing about. You know, I, I would say mm-hmm. law abiding people know nothing about. So it, it's it's a peek into a culture um, that we dare hope we never end up in. So it's fascinating to see people kind of operate, uh, you know, behind bars, you know, an imprisoned life now, uh, you know, for wrongdoings that they may or may not have committed. And now they just need to adapt to this new lifestyle and, you know, in, in many ways survive all sorts of different elements, you know, the, you know, least of which the loneliness of being separated from, you know, potentially loved ones, you know, fearing for your life, um, from people on the inside, you know, there's just a whole barrel of things. So I think it's fascinating. So I think that's why I gravitate to uh, prison films, prison uh, dramas in particular, like the two that we're talking about today. So, uh, yeah, in its simplest form, I think there it is. I have a few notes. uh, I have a lot of notes on prison stuff. Um, (laughs) You know, I I got to this point, like we're going to talk about Short Eyes today uh, to not bury the lead, um, which is my go to a number one. uh, Try not to gush about short eyes uh prison movie but um yeah i just found myself like wow i i i gravitated to this genre uh the you know the male prison drama um which is you know there's multiple subgenres, but some of the things that you know i i like the way the prison films um they complicate uh you know issues of male sexuality um i i think that you know they uh by virtue of of creating a you know an all-male environment Again, second episode in a row, I get to use the word homosocial. How about that? Um, how, many points do I, how many points do I get for that? Um, <laughs> you, you see different, you see different uh, points uh, on, a rel- on a, you know, um, uh, in the realm of male sexuality that you don't always see in, you know, outside of prison or you know, other films. Uh, I think it highlights um, role playing. You know, I, I, the, the idea, not sexual role playing per se, but the idea of uh, performative roles, people taking on certain roles. Uh, within within a world, uh, the idea of of prisons playing the the uh, a microcosm is always really fascinating to me. Where uh, things that happen outside in the in the greater in the greater uh, world um, can be focused on in a, under a much you know sharper lens. Um, I, 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 one of the uh, one of the terms I came across was ecosystem film. I thought was interesting. I think it was uh, uh, related to Altman, but the idea that there could be an ecosystem where everything happens inside this ecosystem, and then concent- you know it concentrates 
a lot of uh, a lot of the emotions and a lot of the issues within that small ecosystem. I think they um, there's just an immediate pressure, you know, uh, immediate tension to a prison environment. It focuses the senses and it also encourages really spare productions. Uh, it gives people um, gives actors an opportunity to really do very strong performances. Um, and uh, and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, of, of miscellaneous stuff. That, there's so much stuff that can't happen inside a prison that happens outside. That these productions that tend to be really stripped down. Um, and I, I, I think I kind of like that. I, I think I kind of appreciate that um, in general. Yeah, for uh, for sure. And uh, I can totally appreciate that. And I really. Um... I really like the idea um, that you brought up uh, their showcases in, in a lot of ways for um, for the performances uh, for the performers. And uh, in these two films that we're going to be talking about today, uh, Short Eyes, um, this is a film. Uh, again, we're going to get into these a little bit more deeply, but it's, it's worth mentioning that in Short Eyes, it's really predominantly um, packed with people that are up and coming. Um, actors. They're not necessarily familiar faces that you would um, know and recognize. Whereas in On the Yard, at least retrospectively, when you watch On the Yard, there's more familiar faces that they're seeing, but on both um, on both fields, uh, they're both giving some truly um, terrific performances. So it's really interesting to kind of see the dynamic of people that, um, especially in the case of Short Eyes, people that uh, lived that life knew that life very well that were populating the casts whereas in on the yard um there are people in that cast that uh knew that life very well but the people that are kind of front loading the picture are you know they are actors they are new york actors and uh they are people that we would go on to see again and again in films so uh yeah very interesting dynamic but um yeah uh as dino mentioned he has i believe it's an encyclopedia size of notes um <laughs> oh okay yeah no I, I i don't know if i have that much but i've got a bunch i've got a bunch um i did want to i have a whole list oh so, okay so uh again we mentioned Short Eyes will be our first movie from 77 tonight uh, or whatever time of day you listen to this. Um, it's kind of nighttime. It looks dark outside. Um, and our second movie is On the Yard from uh, 1978. Um, as I think will be the case in every single one of our podcasts, um, we're spoiling these movies. We're going to talk about things in these movies. Uh, if you don't want the, to, them known, et cetera. I don't, think, I don't know if we did that last time. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're learning by doing folks. Um, to be fair though, I think, mm. uh, not to cut you off, but to be fair, we, I don't think that we did do that, but I was again, humbled and very, very happy to see the response in particularly to ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains, because several people commented and told me personally that before our podcast, they had never heard of that film and they went out of their way to secure the out of print DVD. So spoilers or not. We definitely got our point across on that film. Well, okay, okay, fantastic. It's good. It's good to hear that people uh, people dig it. Um, all right, so we mentioned the uh, women in prison. Uh, a lot of people who are genre fans. Oh yeah, and the other thing. Speaking of genre fans, who um, uh, consider myself a genre fan to some point, uh, but the more and more, you know. More and more I do this, the more and more I do this, the more and more I learn about movies, because that's what I really want to do is learn more and more about this form. Uh, I, I'm just a movie fan. Uh, but I think a lot of genre fans uh, gravitate to um, 
to uh you know to horror or to exploitation and whatnot um these two movies sort of fit in it, within that and they also fit really in in drama but i've always believed that you know, some of my absolute favorite movies like uh like sorcerer uh by, by billy friedkin um are such hard dramas that they kind of have a foot in 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 like B movies, but they're not really. And I think one one of the things that I love about about a really good prison movie, uh, prison drama, is that um, they tend to they they end up being very unflinching films, and they're not um, pulling any punches. They don't mind being incredibly strong, which these movies are pretty strong. For sure. Um, and. I think uh, that's a really, I think that's a really interesting place to go if you're used to like horror and whatnot. I think it's, I think it ends up being a real, um, you can really get a lot out of those, even if it's not normally, uh, even if you're not normally inclined towards dramatic features. Uh, I mentioned women in prison. I have a, a list of uh, subgenres within prison genre. Uh, I wanted to throw around or, you know, you know, let me know what Please. you think of. Um, I, so women in prison is one thing that's really like an exploitation form that usually doesn't lean towards drama. But I'm definitely interested, especially before, you know, Orange is the New Black. I'm definitely interested in in any um, female focused uh, dramas about prison. Um, I don't I don't know many. Uh, the reform school, uh, the reform school youth prison type movie. We mentioned Scum last week, yeah. um, which I. Uh, which I am, you know, highly, you know, highest marks on that. Also, a brutal, brutal drama. Uh, Post-prison movies. These are movies that, uh, you know, it maybe start in prison or involve a certain uh, element of prison, and then, uh, and then involve the story following that. They start they have their roots in it. Uh, comedic prison movies seems a little funny, but there's there's a whole bunch of movies that are like prison comedies. Yeah. Um, POW and labor camp movies. Uh, really. Um, Focusing on the war movie cycle, you end up with that, like Stalag 17, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, bra prison breakout movies, always a big element. Uh, you know, escape. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Always a big element, the um, the escape from uh, from prison movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I just realized there's one on the list that I forgot that involves that, uh, or if not multiple. Um <laughs> Uh, noir. Um, I didn't even add as many uh, movies from the traditional noir cycle, uh, film noir cycle that involve prison. Uh, I didn't add that many. There's so many uh, that have it out that have a little bit of prison in them. Uh, prison boxing movies, uh, mm -hmm. the idea of uh, sports and primarily the boxing or and or fighting within prison, another sub genre of foreign prison movies. Um, we are focusing on, again, as I said, male drama prison films, uh, pr primarily U.S. films, uh, some Canadian. I didn't realize there's a whole bunch of Canadian prison films, but oh, yeah. uh, in terms of European and, and films made in other parts of the world, I'm not really touching on that. But the idea of the foreign prison movie, the first one always is Midnight Express that people talk about, the idea of of lo being locked up um, and uh, being uh, in an alien place. Um and then the the procedurals, you know, the prison movies like something like Dead Man Walking, which involves someone in prison while someone is trying to go through the procedure to get them out legally, you know, dramatically. Any others? Any others come to mind for you? Uh, you know, um, astonishingly, I think that you covered all of them and more that, <laughs> that were uh, rattling around in my own head. But, yeah, I mean, that it just goes to show you the depths of 
what we say um, are prison dramas and just see how many uh, detours and offshoots there are of um, yeah. this very unique genre, as you can see. And there are so many, so many tremendous ones um, to discover, to revisit. But, you know, overall... Um, again, we don't want to get too deeply into women in prison, but it is uh, important, I think, to know that there is a very, um, I would say, a very stark divide between the two. Uh, like we were talking just before we started recording, um, you know, male prison dramas, largely and overwhelmingly, they're billed as very, very harrowing dramas, deep-rooted dramas where, you know, the performances are key and these things get, you know, very gritty and raw. Whereas with women in prison, uh, the overwhelming majority are, you know, they're extensively for the exploitation aspect of it, just to see these girls um, nude and it's very violent. And again, both of them have their merit. I've even gone on record saying that I think I prefer the latter films. I, I think that the women in prison films are just... Um, they're again, they're more exploitative and they're kind of taking more, uh, I, I dare say it's fun because they're not exactly fun, but there is a little bit more of a, an anarchic sort of spirit about them and, uh, the women more or less get, um, kind of their vengeance in the end i think a lot of them have that going for it so they in some of, in some cases they do i mean in some it, cases yeah let's not let's not sugarcoat it. it there are plenty that the women are there to just be abused and kind of exploited but i mean it has to be factored in the, the idea that women in prison has always been an exploitation staple those are almost always movies uh made by men uh those are all those usually are are movies that are just looking for uh um tits and ass uh as a way of making uh you know getting the butts into seats especially in the grindhouse era you know um and uh yeah, I, you know they're not really comparable. They, I, I think they. I mean, they're clearly not comparable. They're totally different things. But yeah. they're, um, they, uh, you know, they speak to they speak to gender roles. They speak to what is expected and what is especially especially what is marketable about um, about gender and how genders are uh, depicted in film. You know, it's it, it's it's easy to have women in prison and, and it matters less than the idea of men in prison. Uh, in terms of depiction, it's easy to have women. It's just, you know, it's it mirrors it mirrors much of our society in 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 ways that are you know obviously uh, deserve critique. Um, women having sex with women inside prison is something that people want to see. Men having sex with each other in prison is is like a you know because it becomes a quote uh, air quotes. Um, you know, dramatic <laughs> issue and whatnot. Um, it, it, you know, it, it reflects the society as a whole, whereas some things are more entertaining and some things are then more threatening. And it comes down to how we do, you know, the expectations and the way movie makers are playing with the expectations of society as a whole based on uh, gender and sexuality. Right, exactly. Um, again, you know, we're here to talk about films as much as we are to talk about sociology, and we're happy to provide that for our listeners. Uh, I, honestly, I, you know, if I can't talk context, I, I mean, I'd say I'm going home, but I am at home. Anyway, nevertheless, I have this big old list, and it was easy to come up with subgenres looking at the list. I have this list. Uh, please butt in uh, anytime you want. I do like uh, – I do appreciate being um, – Interrupted. All right. So uh, one of the first, and, and we've said all this about women and women in prison. And one of the first movies I found from 1928 is actually a Cecil B. DeMille movie called The Godless Girl. Um, 
1929, Thunderbolt. 1932, uh, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, you know, the the, the absolute classic with Paul Muni. Uh, 1947, Brute Force. Uh, 1953, like I said, Stalag 17, um, you know, obviously reflecting on World War II. That's a that's a com- slightly comic adventure prisoner of war camp uh, movie, um, which was the basis for Hogan's Heroes, uh, the, TV, the TV series. Um, have you seen Stalag 17? I actually have not. No, that's a big one, especially in my prison cinema kind of, uh, uh, you know, selections that have uh, that's been lacking. So I got to change that. Amazing Billy Wilder film. Um, I love Billy. I do. I I own it. I own it. So of course you own it. Of course course you. I I absolutely screwed up by by saying on social media that we have. I don't. What did I say? Like five thousand movies where, uh, where (laughs) like. I think Mike has like 10,000 movies by himself. Um, <laughs> anyway, care, okay, care, moving right along, folks. Uh, so 1954, Riot and Cell Block 11. which Fantastic. Just, nice. Yeah, just um, watched that, the, the, the great Don Siegel, very early film for him, um, headed no less by Neville Brand, who gives a fantastic performance in it. Love him, love him. Um, incredible heavy, Neville Brand. Very um, nice. Let's see, 1957, uh, the, the huge one, Bridge Over the River Kwai. Um, if you've ever seen it, you should be wanting to whistle right now. Uh, 19, 1962, so this is the one to me where like the modern the modern prison drama kind of really comes into form. Birdman of Alcatraz, which is um, Burt Lancaster, I think. Um, mm-hmm. 1963, again, World War II, The Great Escape, The Amazing Great Escape. And, Fantastic. Steve um, 1967, Cool Hand Luke, the hard-boiled eggs. Uh, 1969, Riot. This is a lesser-known one, but I really enjoyed that one. I think it's got a young Gene Hackman in it. Um, 1970, There Was a Crooked Man, which I think you've seen. Yeah, that's a fantastic film from uh, Joseph Mankiewicz. For uh, you know, for my money, Mankiewicz is one of the greats, just absolutely the greats. I know his brother Herman has been getting quite a bit of buzz lately from David sure. Fincher's Mank on Netflix, which I urge a lot of people to check out. That was one of my favorite films of last year. But yeah, Joseph Mankiewicz uh, made a great um, prison film, as you said, in 1970. There was a Crooked Man starring Kirk Douglas. Great, great film. And again, Joseph Mankiewicz, a fantastic filmmaker. Uh, uh, you know, all about Eve, guys and dolls, uh, just, um, you know, the ghost and Mrs. Muir, just a, a wonderful, very diverse uh, filmmaker with and there was a crooked man is a one that's lesser discussed, but I don't understand why, because it's really great. So I urge people to check that one out. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if it's a 70s, if it's a 70s prison film, I want to see it. Um, and it's a Western, no less, too. It's 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 in the Wild West. So it's a, it's got like a rural, rural prison type. Oh, yeah. Too. Yeah, nice. very much. Uh, all right, so that was 70. 1971, The Pursuit of Happiness. I don't know that one either. 71 also, Punishment Park, um, a movie that one of my professors when I was in school really wanted me to find before it was in print. Mm-hmm. Um, 1971, I think this one's Canadian. I'm going to get you, Elliot Boy, a.k.a. Caged Men, I which I own. That. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fortune in Men's Eyes, 1971, which is really, really getting close to uh, – to like the the dramatic space that I think the the movies we're going to talk about tonight um, occupy. Uh, 1972, The Getaway, uh, not a prison movie. I was talking about this with someone today who was angry about Convoy, which I I, I don't understand. Uh, I think that I, I think the, I love Convoy too, but it's a mess, and I, and I know that it's got a muddied production. And um, if there's one thing I think. Uh, 
I think you and I could pretty much agree on uh, and that we could focus on in general is um, I have no problem with flawed movies. I don't mind if a movie's got like, you know, a wrenching problem in it. If, if it was taken away from the from the director, if they didn't have final cut, if they screwed up the end of it, um, if there's I something agree. in it, if, yeah, if there's the right elements in it, I'm, I'm fine to work with that. Um, it doesn't have Absolutely. to be perfect. I don't want I don't want movies to be perfect. Absolutely. Um, and Convoy yeah. and uh, The Getaway certainly are imperfect movies. But yeah, The Getaway, I mean, Steve McQueen and Ally McGraw, I mean, just the, the, the chemistry is electric. It's steaming off the screen. And that's that's really a later later day peck and paw film. But uh, yeah, he's still very much, uh, I would say, in his creative pocket at the time. I, I think visually uh, he's kind of firing on all cylinders, but yeah, I mean, it, it's not perfect, but yeah, I, I, I do like that movie quite a bit. I, um, that conversation, by the way, uh, I, I had to, it was, you know, with a, with a film loving friend who, uh, I had to really put the point to him that, um, not, not just about Convoy, which I think is fun because I could watch any truck, almost any trucker movie. Uh, sure. but, um, but no, the Ballad of Cable Hogue uh, is uh, is still one of my major surprises. Like I didn't think I didn't think Peckinpah uh, was going to surprise me at this point. And that movie, I, it's that's apparently his favorite movie that he made. Uh, right. Huge, hugely recommend. Anyway, so Pappy, uh, what am I saying? Not the Pappy. The Getaway starts in prison. That's one of the you know you have the the, the really beautifully shot. Um, I think it's like a prison loom that uh, mm -hmm. the queen is working at before he gets out and the idea of how he gets out of prison. And that's not the movie we're talking about today. Anyhow. <laughs> all right. Moving along a uh, huge one. Cause there are trends to prison movies. I'm going to get into that in a second, but uh, Papillon in, in 1973, uh, Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman, 1973, the slams, uh, Jim Brown movie. One of the uh, Gene Corman produced films uh, really love uh, Gene Corman. Um, who passed away not too long ago. I think I think the, the movies that he produced are kind of overlooked. Uh, from that period, like, what is it? The Slams, Cool Breeze, and Hitman. All three mm -hmm. really, really strong. Uh, okay, 73, I Escaped from Devil's Island. Um, 1974, uh, The Longest Yard, you know, comic uh, film. Uh, 74, that's also, uh, Longest Yard is a football prison yeah. movie. So I, I guess, I guess, I don't know if there's other football prison films. But anyway. Yeah. Um, 1974, Crazy Joe, uh, another film that starts in prison. Interestingly, it's um, it's uh, Peter Boyle and uh, and Fred the Hammer, Fred Williamson. Uh, they you know they make an alliance in prison before they leave prison, and then you know succeed in the in the mafia. Uh, 75, Ilsa She Wolf of the SS, a whole other a whole other cycle. <laughs> We're um, getting into Nazi exploitation there. Yeah, let's that's and we're about to leave it. Uh, 77, <laughs> uh, Scum, which you know 77 is the the BBC version, 79 the the um, feature film version. 77 is also Short Eyes. 78 is Straight Time. Um, I mentioned that last episode. I have to go back to Straight Time. Big fan. I need to, yeah, I definitely need to check that one out. I know you've been uh, recommending me. Oh my God. Yeah. I'll get into that in a second. Also, that's, a, th th that's maybe the best Eddie Bunker, uh, uh, you know, film that he worked on on the yard as we're talking about later. Uh, 78, also 78 midnight express also 78 mean dog blues, a good rural prison movie that I, I really liked 79 escape from Alcatraz. For many people, that's like the prison movie that they talk about. Uh, 79 Another is also a seagull film. Indeed. Um, with uh, not just Eastwood, but um, 
not appropriately celebrated, but really great character actor. Um, uh, Paul Benjamin is in that. Paul Benjamin oh. is is like the big. Uh, He's like the he's like the one real friend, as I recall, to uh, mm-hmm. Eastwood's character in uh, in that. Oh, so okay, what do we have? A uh, Penitentiary seventy nine, um, Jama Fanaka, fantastic. Uh, seventy nine is also the Jericho Mile. It's a TV movie, and I, I think it's Michael Mann. Actually, uh, I, oh, I don't wow. know. I know of it, but I have never seen it. Nineteen eighty, yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, Nineteen eighty, Brubaker. Uh, also 1980, Stir Crazy, the second team up of uh, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Sure. Um, not quite as good as Silver Streak, but I'm biased. Uh, <laughs> 1982, uh, Fast Walking, which is almost more about the guards in a prison than it is about the prisoners. Also, 80, also 82, Penitentiary 2. Mm-hmm. 83, Bad Boys, which Sean lifts Penn. Sean Penn. Um, Directed by uh, Rick Rosenthal, who had done uh, Halloween 2. That's right. That's right. And Alan Ruck is, Alan Ruck is in that in a small part. And um, was it Ali Sheedy? Right. Uh, yep. Takes a lot from Scum. That movie does. I, I can't. I, I have to always say that. Uh, 1985, more Eddie Bunker, Runaway Train, Prison Break movie. Uh, Prison Break movie crossed with a Kurosawa story. Yeah. By uh, Canon Films too, correct? Yes, by Canon Films, by the future director of Tango and Cash. I think it's, ah. <laughs> I think I think it's far better. But that's just me. Uh, 1985, uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, outstanding uh, drama about um, sexuality in prison. 1986, Down by Law, Prison Break. Uh, 1978, Penitentiary Three. Uh, 1987, sorry, Penitentiary Three, which I actually have not seen. Uh, 89 lockup, um, Stallone movie, uh, Stallone, Donald Sutherland loved it as a kid did not hold up. One Um, of the few, uh, Stallone movies from that period that has still evaded me. I only just recently, and by recently, I mean several weeks ago, saw Tango and Cash. So yeah, I need need to still see lockup. It's got a major following. Uh, Tango and Cash does. I probably, I'll I'll get you a copy of lockup. I'm pretty sure I have it. Um, when I say, by the way, Ladies and gentlemen, dominant hair and damas y caballeros, uh, when I say I have a copy, uh, I cannot underscore the fact uh, enough that Mike and I both support physical media. Um, oh, boy, yeah. I, I do stream stuff, uh, even though I'm always grumbling, like I don't want to join that platform if I just want to watch this. But, um, yeah, you buy a copy of a movie on a physical media, and uh, it, somehow it doesn't disappear. Um, unless yeah. you loan it, lo- unless you lose it or something. Anyhow, okay. Ain't that uh, something? <laughs> I'm not getting on that soapbox. Uh, all right, so 1992, American Me, another one I have to go back to. Seriously. Very good one, Edward James yeah. Alamos. And a really, everybody talks about Alamos in it, and rightfully so, but um, William Forsythe is great in that movie. Really, really good. Really overlooked actor in general. I love Forsythe. Oh, oh fantastic. Um. Let's see. Uh, I don't know this one, but I'm intrigued. Uh, 1993, Last Light, a TV movie directed by Kiefer Sutherland. Um, that is news to me. Sounds interesting, right? Uh, no, also, 93, one of the epics. One of the epics um, of uh, one of the epics of, of prison. One of the most beloved movies, Blood in, Blood Out, also known as Bound by Honor. Uh, it is. It is just as up there in the world of of. Um, of Latino, or I should say perhaps Latinx plat, uh, prison movies for the West Coast as uh, short as is for the East Coast and and so forth. I'll get into that. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, obviously, 94, um, which then 
opened the floodgates for a lot of prison dramas of the 90s. Uh, Dead Man Walking. Um, I think that's uh, Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn, if I'm not mistaken. Sean Penn, yeah, which, and uh, to go off on a, a minor tangent, uh, that is a film that I saw. I have not seen yet, but I, I think that it is humorous because Kevin Smith has reiterated the story um, about John Peters when he was going to sit down to um, write the Superman film for uh, Tim Burton. And uh, he he asked him, he said, uh, you know, if you could cast Superman right now, who would it be? And I believe John Peters said, uh, Sean Penn, have you seen Dead Man Walking? He has got, he's got the eyes of like a violent killer. <laughs> and Kevin Smith was like, this is Superman, though. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, very interesting. From Dead Man Walking, you think, yes, I want, that's my Clark Kent, sure. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that mental picture enough is 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 reason for using psychedelics. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Dead Man Walking, 95. Uh, Sleepers, 96. It's got a love, good rep. Love, love. Never seen, never seen. Got to see it. Uh, that is a fantastic film that I saw at a ridiculously young age and this is you know uh, uh, me coming you know through my childhood watching you know tons of horror movies but that was one in particularly um troubling film to watch uh, a fantastic ensemble cast really one of the first films that i saw at a young age that really showed me the power of an ensemble because that is a mm -hmm. film that is populated by as many talented young actors as there are um more experienced actors it, it takes place over uh time it focuses with a um a cast of children who grow up later on and the film is populated by people like brad pitt and um brad pitt and billy crudup mm. and uh um robert de niro is infamously in it uh i'm i'm blanking out on uh Kiefer sutherland's co-star in the lost boys uh uh, Jason Lee's um, or uh, his father was the was Father uh, Karras in The Exorcist. I'm I'm blanking out on his name. I'm not there. I'm not placing it right now. Jason but... Patrick. That's it. Jason Patrick. Oh right. Okay. Yes. Okay, okay. I I met Jason Patrick and I I could not you know obviously at this event everybody was bringing him Lost Boy stuff but I couldn't help but gush about uh, Sleepers and how fantastic of a film that is. But yes. See that's how I know I made the right decision. You know, in asking you to do this, because you're the one guy who didn't gush. You didn't gush about the Warriors to Tommy to, to Tommy Waits, Thomas G. Not. Waits, and you didn't gush. And you gushed about Sleepers instead of the the. That's yeah. Yeah, that's and highest it, it, marks. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I I really do try, and I think that he, I think that he was appreciative of it too. But yeah, that that is a fantastic film and a unique one too in the fact that it deals with boys who um commit uh, a crime i won't i won't get too into it uh because I, I i really do want you to see that dino um and they do time at you know uh as young boys in a prison which i i get what are they, what would you call that nowadays uh, juvenile detention i guess still do they call it that the, you know prisons are funny because they uh they had like real names and uh, uh at one point and then they all became like um corporate sounding acronyms yeah uh, like um what is it? Uh, in Massachusetts, they're all MCIs, MCI yeah. Walpole, uh, yeah. which is I think it's now Cedar MCI Cedar Junction. They, they, they have weird names that's, that that seem like somebody in mark. Well, yeah, but see, somebody in marketing decided, oh yeah, we have to give it something that makes it not sound like there's a you know penitentiary near someone's houses. Right. Um, all right. So uh, ninety nine um, life, uh, the prison comedy. Um, 
uh, my buddy Slee uh, actually told me it's it's worth seeing. I, I it didn't look right to me. Martin Lawrence, Eddie Murphy in a prison comedy. I but I'll give it a yeah. shot. I, I suppose. Um, I mean, '90s movies. I wasn't interested in the '90s. Many of them, many of them look dramatically better now. But that's another story. Um, the Green Mile '99, uh, The Hurricane '99, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, Prison Break movie, period film. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I mean, there's tons since. I'm just stopping at 2000 because that's 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 a good enough list, I think. But uh, I really would, you know, I feel good stopping with Animal Factory, another Edward Bunker. Uh, Edward Bunker penned um, prison story. A um, couple of the trends I just want to mention literary uh, that are that are notable. Um, like I said, Eddie Bunker, uh, Edward Bunker, aka the old guy who plays the one of the the old guy Reservoir Dog, who's not Lawrence Tierney, um, <laughs> but uh, he uh, he wrote a movie called No uh, wrote, wrote a movie wrote a, a book called No Beast So Fierce. Uh, which was published in 1973. That was the basis for Straight Time, which was 78. Um, that's kind of you know part of this trend uh, of of prison stuff that started in the 70s and continued to the 80s. Malcolm Braley, who wrote On the Yard, published it in 67, a few years earlier, until uh, uh, the Silvers uh, made it in 78. Um, the one, one of the ones I remember that was really got a lot of press in the 80s was uh, Jack Abbott's In the Belly of the Beast from 1981, mm-hmm. um, which probably correlated to um, w- one of my favorite Eddie Murphy skits on Saturday Night Live. It was um, – I think it was called Prose, as in P-R-O-S-E, Pros and Cons. It's the famous uh, Kill My Landlord where Eddie Murphy's character is is, recitera- is, recitera- is reciting a, a poem called Kill My Landlord. Um, that was, uh, October, 1981. It's, it's about an expose of like, you know, some of the best writing is now coming from prisons. So in some of this list of all these prison movies, some of them came out of times where they were, it was obviously, uh, a trend to be, to be, you know, to be messed with the idea of messed with a trend to be pursued. Um, and, uh, arm two movies tonight really came out in a period of time when, uh, people were looking at prisons, people were in the midst of, you know, the art tour era of, of, uh, cinema so they could, make dramatic movies um about prison so um yeah uh, do you have any other you can move on to short eyes or yeah no i I, I think that we gave our listeners um a nice uh appetizer before we really get into the nitty-gritty of uh i eat movies too so ladies and gentlemen uh we're we did some hard time with these movies so uh we're inviting you to do some hard time with us so first up 1977's short eyes why the warden or the captain put you here I don't question their motive. But for once, I'm going to ask why they put us sick. Fucking degenerate like you on my floor. If you look at me from the side, if you talk from the side of your mouth, if you mispronounce my name, if you pick up more food than you can eat, if you undersleep, if you oversleep, if you call me when I think it's unnecessary, I'm going to bust your fucking face up so bad your own mother ain't going to know you. Isn't this being kind of harsh? Shut up! My eight-year-old daughter was molested by one of these bastards, and I just as well pretend that it was you, Davis. Oh, short eyes. Davis, are you one of these short eyes freaks? Are you a short eyes freak? Stay out of it, Murphy. 
I'm talking to this scumbag, this child rapist. How old was she? Eight, seven? Disgusting bastard, you stay out of my sight. You look at me wrong, and I'll take a nightstick and I'll shove it dead up your ass. Right on, short eyes uh, is uh, yeah. I could speak about short eyes a lot, but um, <laughs> one of the movies that I recommend that's not short eyes, but is is a very good corollary to uh, the basis of this uh, is the is the uh, film Pinero about Miguel Pinero who wrote Short Eyes. Um, that that which was made by Leon Chasso, I think it came out in two thousand one uh, with Benjamin Bratt in the lead playing Miguel Pinero. Uh, I have an article from The Voice from back to from by Ed Morales, um, which I, I, I like this uh, this one sentence in, in explaining who Miguel Pinero was. Uh, quote: The enigmatic Pinero was the seminal New Yorkian poet playwright, part time gangster character actor. Genet-inspired, polysexual prison culture activist, mama's boy, your friendly neighborhood junkie hustler, and New Yorkian Poets Cafe co-founder Miguel Algarin's best friend. Miguel Algarin uh, passed away, I believe, in December, was it? Um, he was uh, – he and, and Mikey Pinheiro, Miguel was often known as Mikey, um, they were – uh, to uh, co-founders of the New York and poets cafe, but going much, much further back, Miguel Pinheiro, who wrote the play short eyes, um, had a long, well, he, okay. He was born in, in Gurabo, Puerto Rico. Um, and I think at the age of four, uh, came with his parents to New York city. And within a couple of years, I believe his father, uh, abandoned the family. Um, Pinheiro was a, was very much like a product of, uh, you know, pretty diff difficult circumstances and, and, and rough times in New York City. He's very much an exponent of the deuce, uh, but he wasn't going, he wasn't going to movies. To, he wasn't going there to watch movies as much as he was uh, learning to turn tricks. Um, he was involved with uh, gangs. He got uh, heavily involved in crime. I think already by 1966, I believe the family moved to, uh, to the mainland, to New York City, uh, in uh, in 1950. By 1966, he was already uh, a junkie, and had already done time in um, in prison. And uh, he ended up in Sing Sing. Sing Sing is, if you're not familiar with it, a um, uh, high security prison. It's about a half hour away from where I am right now. Uh, that's that's quite historic. Um, strangely enough, the commuter rail, the Metro North, goes straight through the prison. Um, oh, wow. Strangely enough, yeah, you you don't want to walk that section of tracks if if you're prone to doing such things. But um, <laughs> so um, he was in prison. This uh, you know the, the, this this basically this criminal you know who had who had all kinds of a. Uh, um, all kinds of crime and drug history. And he got involved in a uh, prison uh, writing workshop by a guy named um, Camilo, uh, Marvin Felix Camilo, who started a prison theater workshop. This is the seventies. Uh, such things actually could still happen. And um, within like a insanely short period of time, I think he was in, in 1972 for armed robbery. Pinheiro was, he, uh, he wrote his first poem. I think it was black woman with a blonde wig on. Uh, Camillo submitted the poem to a contest and it won like first or second prize. And then Pinheiro wrote a play. And I, I think, I believe it was first play. His first play was short eyes, um, which they were performing, uh, in the prison. 
in Sing Sing itself with a crew of, uh, of actors who are all cons, uh, many of whom were, you know, addicted or dealing with uh, elements of addiction to drugs. Um, and they, uh, they, managed, they managed to actually uh, make enough of a splash that this, mo- that this play helped get them out of prison and they started performing it. Uh, a crew of these um, prisoners and, and convicts became, they were organized as the family. Um, and, and the most, the most obvious, the most present ones were the two who um, Leon Chasso, the director of Pinheiro referred to as uh, uh, the two jesters of uh, Sing Sing. That's uh, Miguel, Miguel Pinheiro and, and Tito Goya. Um, yeah who uh, I believe Tito Goya was born Andrew Butler in Long Island. Uh, but they were like, you know, thick as thieves, the two of them. And maybe that's a bad way of putting it, considering these two guys did go on to steal a lot of stuff. Um, sure. <laughs> so, so um, yeah. So basically Camilo was uh, produced this play and they ended up doing it in, uh, I think it was uh, on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. Um let me just see what I have in in in, in all my in all my seventy something pages of notes, as we said. <laughs> Only uh, seventy guys. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I went light today. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so so short eyes. Short eyes took off um, from the Riverside Church in the Upper West Side, and then Joseph Papp, um, you know, one of the biggest names in theater. And, and, and it should be noted that this is the 70s. Like theater is still very much a thing. And underground theater is very much a thing. This is the same era of time that birthed um, genre fans will know, especially now that it's getting more and more press. Andy Milligan came out of underground theater in the village. Um, yeah. This is off, were, off Broadway, if you will. Yes. Well, but but the thing with this was um, this was so interesting to Joseph Papp, who was on Broadway, that he uh, he took this this. You know, this play made by prisoners, made by convicts, uh, who were very well aware of exactly the characters that they were playing because they either were them or they knew them. From the Riverside Church, he moved it to the public theater, which he was responsible for. This is the guy responsible for the um, the Shakespeare Festival, New York City Shakespeare Festival. Um, so he went moved to the public theater. Then he took it to Broadway, um, and it eventually ended up on at Lincoln Center. Um, and, and he took all kinds of flack for this because it's like, what are you doing with these hoodlums? What are you doing with these, um, you know, with these characters who, who were, you know, mostly Puerto Rican, black and Puerto Rican, who had come out of prison? Why are you giving them this window? And they, uh, nonetheless, you know, they got a, r- a ridiculous amount of positive press. People were really interested in this. In the context of the 70s, this was really giving a voice to people who, understood the city and understood the times and understood um, really the struggle of their communities more than, you know, your average uh, theater, uh, more than your average theater production could really, um, could really speak to. Right. So, and, um, is, and it's, and you keep reiterating too, that this was the seventies. This is uh this is still a time where this is a, you know, a, a racist hotbed at the time, especially in a melting pot like New York City. So it's pretty amazing to see a guy like um, Miguel Pinheiro kind of 
achieve what he did in prison, which, you know, just writing a, a play, being able to perform it is, you know, more uh, creative, you know, more creative accomplishments, you know, that than most people that aren't incarcerated can accomplish in their lifetime. And then to take it where he did is is frankly uh, remarkable. But uh, please continue. Absolutely. No. And and again, um, I, I, I go back to the Leon Ichasso film. Uh, Pinheiro, it tells this whole story. Um, I think this is, I, I've been a fan of this, of Pinheiro for a long time, but um, I have to say that cobbling this together is, uh, not to pat myself on the back, but it, it's actually surprisingly hard. This is a, this is very much, this film and, and, and the background of it, this is a snapshot of a period of time. Most of these people died very, very quickly. Um, sure. and, and a lot of the documentation of it, if it wasn't for that film, Pinheiro, a lot of the documentation of it will be much harder because a lot of the uh, information about someone like Miguel Pinero, who did do 17 films, who he wrote episode of Beretta, he wrote um, multiple episodes of Miami Vice. Uh, he has he has uh, um, film coverage as an actor, but a lot of the rest of it, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the right people keeping track of it, it would be lost uh, right. because th these guys really lived that life. Um, I mean, all the way through. So, okay. So, um, Pinheiro then starts acting, uh, with this, uh, you know, with all this newfound, uh, success and, and it ha it has to be said everything street with this guy, everything, it, it never went away. He was, he, he was well aware of how, um, this is a very literate, this is a very literate guy. He was being asked to, uh, to speak, um, He's being asked to speak at Princeton, at Rutgers, at Pratt. And in the meantime, this is a guy who was still hustling. He was still felt like the connection to the street um, and, uh, and and criminality. And, and of course, he, he, he was always dealing with, with drug issues. Um, right. So and, that, and that's a desire that I think is uh, very key and, and sadly kind of plays into – Pinheiro sort of, uh, you know, self-inflicted demise, if you will, because I, I think it's it's noted, uh, you know, just, you know, uh, during the production of Short Eyes, you know, he and Tito Goya were arrested while making the film for armed robbery and arraigned in the same building that they were filming. The yeah, it, 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 in the tombs. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah, in the I, tombs. And uh, yeah, it, it's just crazy that there just seemed to be that, you know, with as much um adulation and successes he was receiving outside there just always seemed to be um a need and a desire to kind of go back to uh an incarcerated life which it's it's tragic in in a lot of ways and i don't think that that is um you know that's not unlike how i'm sure many prisoners must feel like when they've been you know incarcerated for so long they don't know you know any other life quite like that, no matter how hard, um, you know, or maybe how successful they become. Right. And, and, and you know, p everything that made um, Miguel Pinheiro famous, everything that made him a genius, like some of his poetry, which I, I can't recommend enough, uh, Seeking the Cause is is probably my favorite. Um, Miguel Pinheiro was really a poet, a poeta. Uh, and and it's not, um, it's not in any way, uh, it's not in any way, like, going too big or exaggerating to say this is the guy who invented slam poetry um Very but awesome. his all of his success goes back to the streets and this is like a standard like i think this is a standard issue with artists like you know trying to tap back into the source that made them who they are you know having that connection with the streets uh 
was what fueled all of his all of his creativity, you know, and 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 it, I, I think that issue happens over and over and over again with artistic types, especially ones who who uh, who have a certain measure of success. So, um, yeah, he was already involved in some television productions at that time. But uh, what had happened was the um, the uh, producer. OK, so there's a couple different stories here uh, in the 70s. Oh, I should say also uh, this is the 1970s, the uh, post civil rights in the 60s you know, the repercussions of civil rights at the time um, on other groups, on women's rights, uh, it was a third wave, third wave feminism, on Native American rights, on Latino rights, um, and in this context, Puerto Rican rights. Uh, this is this is very much still an activist era. Um, this is an era where the young lords uh, were, were doing school lunch programs and so forth, just like the, the um, in Detroit, the uh, Black Panthers were and so forth. Uh, there's a lot of activism in non-white communities uh, at the time. There's a lot of awareness of culture, especially in New York City in the 70s. This is the time of salsa music. Um, and there are it, it took in Hollywood, it took a long time, but there are increasingly more and more Latino and Latina actors, Latinx actors, as we now call them, getting roles, uh, even though it's still a period of time when someone like Alan Arkin ends up with, you know, playing, uh, playing Latinos right. in a couple of roles. So, um, so what happens with the movie short eyes is, uh, and the reason I say this, you know, there's a couple, uh, there's a couple different stories. Uh, Robert M. Young, the director of, uh, of the film version of short eyes, uh, is, is very genteel in not talking about the original director. Now they inherited the cast or at least part of the cast. Um, I think it was at least four, members of the of the of the the show of, of the uh the broadway of the play that ended up in the movie a couple others i think one of them might have died before the movie was was shot and one um robert m young just didn't really think was going to work uh so basically a, a music producer lou harris who was who was behind superfly and connected to curtis mayfield's uh, company kurtum uh which was his label at the time they uh with a director named Chester Fox. I believe this is the same Chester Fox. I didn't confirm this. I don't know if you have this or not. Uh, massage Parlor Murders. He exactly. Exactly. Yeah. With um, with George Zunza, yeah. <laughs> as it were, I think, Polish. Right. Um, so basically, Chester Fox, uh, Chester Fox bought this. Um, he got the option to make a movie of this hit play. It was the uh, it was a hit. Short Eyes was was also, what was it? It was the best American play for the 73-74 season New York Drama Critics Circle Award. Um, there's a show, showing Mike a copy wow. of, the, of the play. If we have to go back to the play, uh, there's a lot the of- The benefits uh, of me dialogue. being the co-host of this show, ladies and gentlemen. I get to yeah. see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has to look at me, though, which is, <laughs> you know, a tall order. Now, nevertheless, so Chester Fox options this uh, this play for cheap from Miguel Pinheiro. Why? Because he needed a fix. He was, you know, he was heroin addicted. Um, and uh, he gets it for cheap. And because he ends up also with a whole bunch of ex-cons who knew these roles from perfecting them in in prison and then in, in all the success and the rise in the early 70s of this play – um, he shoots for five days and after five days, the cast, th the cast says, if you come back to, to direct this movie, we're going to kill you. And this is a cast you believe. These are, these are like, right. 
semi-professional actors uh, at best. So, um, and none of that footage exists either. To the five days that he shot it, they were completely scrapped. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was, um, it was totally, it was totally scrapped. But and Robert M. Young came in. Robert M. Young is. A hell of a director, actually. Uh, I mean, not yeah. just for, for this movie, but um, let's see. He made Ch- Children of the Fields in 73, uh, same year as, as Short Eyes. He made Alambrista. Uh, he made an outstanding movie called Rich Kids, which if you haven't seen it, is totally up your alley, Mike. Um, I, I have it. Of course I do. 1979, yeah. yeah. I think it's uh, – is that an olive disc perhaps? That is an um, olive disc, yeah. I don't know why I remember this stuff, but you're good at it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Extremities, uh, which which I remember hearing about from '86, and I, uh, I you know, uh, as a series. Sarah Fawcett. Yeah, yeah, it's a revenge movie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I remember it, but I, you know, it's another one I would have to see again. Dominic and Eugene in '88, and Triumph of the Spirit uh, in '89. Uh, he was the producer um, in terms of focusing on marginalized. Uh, marginalized people and uh you know minorities non-white people uh in, in america he was the producer of nothing but a man in 1964 which is a very very important movie uh within civil rights um and just an amazing drama uh and he has uh, i think he's, he's pretty much still working to the to the modern day if i'm not mistaken robert m young i believe so yeah and, and it's also it's also interesting to note too that uh he all he came from a National Geographic docs background. So it's interesting to see when people are documentarians, especially um, documenting things such as nature and kind of finding the beauty uh, in our environments. And then they, um, you know, and then they make the leap to feature films. It's just interesting what kind of artistic sensibilities they take from that work and bring them over to, you know, drama such as this. Just just, uh, you know, piggybacking off of the credits that you rattled out. He also mm. made one one trick pony in 1980, yes, which yes, started yes. Paul Simon and uh, the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez in 82 with Edward James Olmos. Another have you seen movie. those? I, I, I have I have not. And they uh, going through the research, they really stuck out to me mainly due to the lead. You know, Paul Simon and Edward James almost respectively really jumped out to me, uh, especially in the wake of something like Short Eye. So, yeah, they are they're definitely on my short list now. Got it. I short eye short list. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And I also interesting uh, that Robert M. Young has a uh, same number of um, roughly the same number of credits as cinematographer as he does director. So uh, yeah. which, which speaks to his uh, collaborative nature. Um, the the documentarian angle, like some of the things that you learned, I think it was uh, this might have been from the commentary. He didn't use any master shots and he doesn't believe in master shots. Uh, this movie is actually entirely shot with one camera, which I found which I found fascinating. Fascinating. Um, and uh, and it, it, it really it, it has an I actually don't know the editor offhand, but uh, it has a tremendous amount of. Um, of shots to such a degree where there could be three cameras being used. So, okay. So Robert M. Young enters the picture, um, still under the Lou Harris production, actually in, in the, uh, the, the opening title block, uh, Harris and Fox have still have credits though, you know, not as, uh, Fox is not listed as director. Um, he, he referred to Miguel Pinheiro as the American Jean Genet, which I think says a lot. Um, so in making this production, uh, which I think they made in three weeks, uh, I, I heard it was $300,000 they had. Uh, Robert M. Young mentioned he was never even actually fully paid. But yeah. um, he <laughs> he grabs Mikey Pinheiro, 
and tanks him up on cherry brandy because apparently if you give apparently on enough cherry brandy he didn't need to fix he didn't need to score heroin and uh and they go about adapting it and uh from what robert m young says he he sequenced things himself but he kept all of mike uh, all of miguel pinero's uh own words um and and very few things that he even add to it he was very he, he's he, you know in modern day in modern interviews and commentaries he's very um he's got a tremendous amount of respect he's like this was mikey's thing and it had to be done the right way uh and the original director was not going that way and um and that's and, and it was very reverential uh he uh the whole production was made in uh what they what they referred to as the tombs i think they still could still do but it, again it's another prison that's changed names it was the men's house of detention in downtown manhattan and they gave them a whole floor um under the ab uh, beam administration they gave them a whole floor and the whole cast and crew s- stayed there and right. i i think you can actually see that in the movie uh, Young himself says he had to be close to the bars. He had to be in that milieu to just even give it the right essence. Because this movie is very tightly shot and it's very close, and there's a lot of point of view shots. But it it, it never again. There's no master shots. It never really pulls back. Right. And most of this movie is shot in a day room. Yeah, and very much so. Uh, it, it's it's fascinatingly shot, and to know that he didn't use master shots just kind of adds to you know how impressive this film is um it is shot uh by peter sova who is a you know very well noted uh cinematographer who would go on to do films like diner good morning vietnam and donnie brosco and he brings a real edge to the film just kind of shooting through the bars shooting up slanted angles and whatnot real tight close-ups he, uh, close-ups he really gives you a sense of urgency and intimacy uh in the photography so yeah r- uh, really really nicely photographed yeah the uh he would uh, okay so i believe he and um I also don't have the name of who did the lighting. Uh, they, the, these members of the crew were all set before Young got there. Um, so they did at least have some some crew who knew what they were doing uh, prior to him uh, appearing. So, so yeah, it, within the space of four weeks, this movie was shot. I want to go through the plot a little bit. This is going to yeah, be relatively, uh, this, relatively yeah. new for us. So um, – uh, Roughly, please, please uh, jump in wherever you know wherever needed. Again, the uh, the story takes place in the day room of the tombs, and you're introduced to different groups of people. Um, perhaps the biggest group are Puerto Ricans, um, and then there's you know in traditional in traditional uh, uh, you know prison dramas, these are you know race divided groups: the Puerto Ricans, the African American, the Black population, and then the few uh, white members of the uh, of the um, Prison population, who are uh, very much the minorities in this film. Basically. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting because they they don't seem to really be, or it's not really shown that way and on the yard. But that we'll get to. Sure. Um, so uh, yeah, so uh, Joe Carberry. So from the original stage cast, Joe Carberry, Tito Goya, um, Bob Maroff, who ends up he's, he's one of these character actors, or ended up doing a lot of uh, jobs as. Um, you know, uh, cop type characters, pretty decent career, and Kenny Stewart, uh, along with along with Miguel Pinheiro, those are the the members who were brought on, and quite a few uh, actors were uh, quite a few actors who did not come from the family. Um, it, it, it 
the family was that troop of actors. I, I again, I want to state that even though it's very hard to figure out who in this production was uh, a member of the family, who you know, again, a lot of these guys didn't survive the '80s. A lot of them didn't survive the '70s, uh, for right. one reason or another. This is really a snapshot of, of a moment in time. Um, some of the actors that they brought on, uh, Jose Perez, fantastic. Um, well, one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Okay, all right. Um, Jose Perez, uh, acting since the '60s, he's in Born to Win in '71. Uh, the incredible uh, Bruce J. Friedman uh, Steam Bath, which was made as a TV movie, I think maybe twice '73 and '83. There might, I think, they might have attempted to make it a uh, to make it a, a TV series. Uh, that's Bruce J. Friedman. Um, who also uh, he also worked on Stir Crazy, another prison one. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the father of Josh Allen Friedman. Who um, have you read Tales of Times Square? By the way, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So that's the father of of, of Josh Allen Friedman and wow. uh, and uh, and his brother is Drew Friedman, who mm-hmm. is uh, the pointillism um, uh, pointillism um, artist who does a lot of. Uh, I think he had a he had he's a re- I think he was a regular for. Um, Gilbert Gottfried, and I think he had a comedy Jewseum on Jews and comedy, and okay. uh, did a lot of um, uh, portraits in his pointillism style. Yeah, uh, which fantastic, uh, fantastic work. What is it? Gilbert refers to him to him as Jew dots. Anyway, fittingly, <laughs> um, right? Yeah. So Perez did Night Flowers. I want to go back to Night Flowers eventually. A pretty obscure one from '79. He's in DC Cab. He's in uh, the um, the last. Uh, Bruce, uh, Burt Reynolds directed movie, which I love, Stick, Stick. Yes. in 1985, in which he uses the term, or the term comes up with in a scene with him, the term short eyes. So short eyes means child molester, but it didn't before this movie. Miguel Pinheiro invented it. It was right. not a term that uh, that was in use, but you know, coming from the place that he did, it's one of those things he could make seem natural easily. But I, I think it's, it's interesting that in the scene with Burt Reynolds and Jose Perez in Stick in the 80s, the short eyes right. concept still comes up. Right. Um, he's, uh, let's see, did two episodes of Miami Vice. He's in a small role in Miami Blues in 1990, Mask of Zorro 98, and appears in The Way of the Gun. Um, amazing presence. I mean, especially in short eyes. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I think Bruce Davison, who is the lead uh, or one of the leads in, in Short Eyes, I think he said one day uh, Jose Perez just quit the business and got a boat. And the, and yeah. the last thing I think the last thing we know about Jose Perez is he's somewhere on a boat. Yeah. Um, but um, really, really good. Um, pretty short character. Uh, Pinheiro himself was only five six. I, I'd be surprised if uh, if uh, Perez uh, is um, is any taller. Uh, I mention this because uh, the way that this movie is constructed by virtue of what Young says, uh, the two sides of, uh, of Miguel Pinheiro are the activist, uh, the caring activist awareness side, which was performed by Jose Perez uh, playing Juan in Short Eyes, and the criminal side. Which was performed, which is so he splits these two parts of the care of his personality, the real the real guy's personality, into uh, into two characters, and the other character is the incredible Sean Elliott. Now Sean Elliott, uh, Sean Elliott is um, I think his last Paco name. in the film. Yes, he's Paco, but his last name is Santiago, and he was actually a musician before he he got involved in acting. 
Uh, Paco is one of the scariest and most impressive guys. Another, again, just like Perez, he's one of the professional actors who got involved in this production. Um, and that, and and his role in particular, I believe, uh, that you alluded to earlier was the role uh, that they had another actor, and Robert Young had to, the only time in his career, had to sadly fire the actor because it just wor- wasn't working out. But ultimately, it seems like he made the right choice because again i I agree wholeheartedly with you sean uh, elliott in this film is fantastic absolutely um sean elliott uh let's see he he actually had a disco record i don't know it offhand he had a disco record in the uh in the 70s and more recently has recorded salsa um he uh he's in beat street in 84 crossover dreams by leon echasso director of Pinheiro in 85 offbeat 86 whole bunch of tv roles he's in the deadpool He's uh he's in Do the Right Thing. This is interesting. Again, you know, there's a lot in this movie, just like in, in the period of time, there's a lot in this movie that speaks to African-American stories and uh, Puerto Rican. I mean, in New York at this time, I should say, I don't want to limit things because obviously New York got much more complicated in terms of Latino um, and Latin American cultures. Uh, Puerto Rican became it became uh more New York, Dominican city and so on and so on. But at the time, Puerto Rican cultures, uh, in do the right thing. Sean Elliott plays a Puerto Rican icy man, which <laughs> if you're Puerto Rican, which speaks to probably the production and Spike Lee. Uh, um, but if you're Puerto Rican, what that is, is the Piraguero, the guy who makes the Piraguas, which mm-hmm. if you're, if you've spent any time in New York city in hot weather, somebody has rolled up to you with a homemade cart with a block of ice that he shaves and then pours different, different, uh, syrups, usually in like re- repurposed, uh, bottles, like repurposed Bacardi bottles. That's Piraguas. That is the traditional Puerto Rican ice. Um, but he's Puerto Rican icy man. I, I like that because they, they did not call him Piraguero for, for good reason. Uh, Fantastic. He's in a movie called Impulse from 1990, which is not the 80s Impulse. Mm-hmm. Um, one A movie that we should talk about at some point. Um, yeah. Overlooked. I believe I own it. So, yes, please. <laughs> you believe you own like tons of movies, just like just like I do, where like I think I have that somewhere. Uh, he's in some movie called Bloodsucking Pharaohs in Pittsburgh from 91. Do you know that? Oh. Do you know that at all? I, I have not seen it, but I've heard of it because, I mean, how do you forget a title like that? But yeah, it makes I have me think of, of a, it makes me think of a Polish, a Polish vampire in Burbank. Yes. Anyway, yes. Um, perfect double bill. I don't know if we should yes. ever <laughs> cover those two movies. Uh, a film called Caught from 96, Hurricane Streets, 97, another urban drama. A lot of people will record will recognize him um, uh, from Law and Order. He had a recur- a recurrent role often as a judge. It's actually one really good episode of uh, – this is the original. This is not SVU, I don't think. The original Law & Order. There's actually one amazing uh, scene where he, as the strict judge, um, breaks into tears upon realizing that, uh, you know, the, the – the, um, the defendant is non compos mentis. He's like off his meds and so forth. Um, and uh, – sorry. You, we, oh, no, we, no, no. Please. Okay, um, try to judge uh, Mike's uh, Mike's <laughs> way. Mike is looking at me. Uh, a movie, and and he acted up to 2012 um, uh, in a movie called Arbitrage. He started in the 70s as uh, let me see, uh, doing stage work. Um, Jacques Brel is alive and well, and I think singing on Broadway. But he plays okay, so he plays Paco. Um, rounding out the cast, you have Nathan George, who. An amazing African-American actor. He plays Ice. 
Um, what what a bunch of credits this guy amassed in the seventies. But, but not enough though. He not you know, enough. he's he's one of these guys where I don't know what happened. Uh, he's in Clute in seventy one, Serpico seventy three. What I know him for one of my all time favorites, the Takey of Pelham one two three, the original right. one. Of course. The, by the way, you know there's three. There's three versions of that movie. The one that people overlook is a late '90s made-for-TV movie, made-for-TV version with Lorraine Bracco playing the. Uh, yeah, it, it's worth seeing. It was made in it was made in Canada. It's very not New York City, but anyway, mm-hmm. the original Taking Pelham One Two Three. Nathan George plays the cop who gets stuck in the the beat cop who gets stuck in the tunnel on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, one Floor was the Cuckoo's Nest in 70, 75, I think. Yeah. And he's in he's in Brubaker. Um, some of these guys kept getting roles in, in prison movies. Um, so then there's Don Blakely, uh, who plays El Rahim. Um, I always thought – I have to say I initially thought he was part of the family. He's in uh, Cross on the Switchblade, 1970, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a uh, Christian-based uh, ghetto movie. Um, let's see. Shaft's big score, 72. Uh, the Ivan Dixon, the spook who sat by the door from 73. Overlooked right. one that, that he's in a, a pretty damn good Barry Shear TV movie from called strike force, which has a whole bunch of VHS releases. I might have another, I might have an extra one for you. It's got Cliff Gorman in it. Um, Richard gear, young Richard gear. And, ah. and Joe Spinell, you know, <laughs> Joey, one of our gods, uh, Joe Spinell plays a guy named Saul Terranova. Uh, Don Blakely is in Defiance, 1980, the Jan Michael Vincent uh, vigilante fight back movie. Uh, he's also Don Blakely's in Brubaker in 80. Vigilante. He's the one of the wow. bad guys in in Bill Lustig's great um, Bill Lustig. Yes, Uncle and, Bill Lustig. And it's also uh, interesting to note. Uh, that Don Blakely actually does appear in a minor role in our next film, On the Yard. He is the one main connection between these two movies. He yeah. plays Tate in On the Yard. He's yeah. in Harlem Nights, a movie I've been yelling at Mike about for a couple weeks now. <laughs> uh, one, one of one of my very few uh, gaps of my 80s Eddie Murphy um, watches that has just evaded me, but that will be changing very soon. Well, folks, feel free to get on Mike's back because I want to do our next episode on Harlem Nights and uh, <laughs> another movie for Black History Month, uh, which of course has to be addressed. Um, 29th Street, uh, Don Blakely is in, and he actually pops up in Pulp Fiction. Um, I, I have to look more closely. For, I guess he plays like a minor role in Pulp Fiction. Um, look at that too, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, okay, so those are, those are the professional actors. So basically this movie, I, I think I was like five or ten years ago, I think I was starting to talk about the plot. Um, so but also, bef- right before you do that, also, uh, yeah. this, as, as close as we want to get to a lead in this film who's really, um, this is very much an ensemble piece, but if there's anybody sure. that is our vessel into this film, it's probably the person who is probably the most noticeable face, rightfully so, I suppose, is Bruce Davison, who's playing the Clark Davis character, who, of course, genre fans would know from Willard. Uh, he would go on to do 1976. Grand Jury, as well as 1984's uh, Crimes of Passion, the great Ken Russell, uh, the Ladies Club in 86, and more contemporary uh, you know, superhero fans might recall him from X-Men in 2000. But yeah, he is really our vessel into this film of which we will know the plot according to Dino. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Um, yeah, Bruce, Bruce Davison is, is the titular character, the guy who gets labeled short eyes. He has no awareness of... He, he, he is... 
he is uh, not quite the protagonist, but he is he's the character who's entering this this milieu uh, alien, uh, you know, playing with the audience's sympathy because obviously you know we don't know what this prison's all about, uh, uh, and we're learning it just as he is. Uh, Bruce Davison, see, uh, I where do you start? I, like the guy has, I think, two hundred and seventy some odd roles. Just, um, just one one of the. One of the great character actors, I would say, and one of the most underrated. I, I'm I'm pulling away from the idea of, of using the term character actor uh, because of Pat Healy's argument that he made. Anyhow, uh, but as an <laughs> as a supporting actor, okay, as an actor, working actor, I'm really pulling for this guy to make it to 300 damn roles. He's yeah. almost up there in James Hong territory. But um, yes, of course, Willard. He's also in Ultzana's Raid, one of the great hippie. Uh, revisionist westerns uh that's it's really critiquing the vietnam war he's in mother jugs and speed um <laughs> uh he he's in a he's in a pretty cool a movie called brass target which is a, a you know fictional uh fictional v- world war ii movie all about the attempt or the idea of the attempt to uh to kill uh general macarthur if i'm not mistaken i need uh, to see and- that Oh, it's a good one. A Warner Archive disc, um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and he has a small, good, slimy corporate role, or I should say it's a, it's a government corporate role in uh, Spies Like Us, one of my childhood favorites. Fantastic. So, okay, so basically um, the, the milieu of, of the tombs of this, of this uh, jail, um, because it is, it is a jail, it's not a penitentiary, uh, like some obviously some some of the characters are there for longer than others which we learn about in time uh the day room is established and we learn the main characters um and then uh clark davis who is played by davis and shows and one of the uh one of the actor one of the guards mr net played by bob maroff quickly and very pointedly um in the midst of when uh, Charlie Longshoe Murphy, one of the white guys in the prison, the established white characters, he is trying to teach Clark Davis about what it's like. You know, we do okay on this floor. The white, the whites are okay on this floor. And, and, you know, be careful on who you talk to and who you mess with. Don't accept any gifts from anyone. Um, And quickly, uh, one of the things that's important, not just for, you know who Pinero was, and and how this movie goes is he tells him you're not stuff, you don't want to be stuff, which right. literally is basically telling him, you know, you 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 don't want to be engaging in sex with men, you don't want to be engaging with the other, you don't want to be taken advantage of or become property of someone else, you don't want to work into that, um, and Davison. I mean, Davison carries, I don't want to say he carries the movie, um, because there's so many amazing points of dramatic, uh, just just yeah. style to this whole thing but he's it's, it's very it's very hard because this I, I would you know i would be hard pressed to say that this movie belongs to any one performer sure. in this because sure. you, you get so sucked into certain uh passages and exchanges in this film where like one actor or another are just absolutely dominating a scene and then several moments later you'll be swept up in another exchange with somebody else so again we're very hard pressed to say that this film belongs to any one performer because this is very much a powerful ensemble piece and this is a i mean this movie is this movie's a hammer this movie is 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 brutal and it's very and, challenging this is a very challenging film but it's also like as difficult as it is to relate to a prison for for many people to relate to a prison environment there's something very interesting like in both of these movies in on the yard also the points of um the points of, of actual joy 
the points, uh, the rare points of humanity and vulnerability in different characters when they do pop up. Obviously, even in the most dark prison movie, there has to be a level of humanity, just in the same way that any bad guy cannot just simply be a bad guy in a movie. They have to be a more fleshed out role. Um, Each of these movies really, really does fine work in in pointing out these points of uh, of humanity. So Mr. Net, the Bob Maroff character, quickly exposes um, Clark Davis by saying not only that he is a child molester, a short eyes, or as as long shoot Charlie Murphy, the unbelievable Joe Carberry. Uh, and I do want to talk about some of the movies he was in. Sure. Um, he, he, you know, you're not a short eyes freak, are you? Uh, he... Um, Again, he, this, uh, this is this is being this information is being exposed on the floor of the prison by, in front of all by the, yeah. yes, by one of the uh, by one of the guards who is well aware of what he's doing and exactly what peril he's about to put this total like doe-eyed uh, first time in prison, you know, and very confused character. Uh, he's very into. He's very. He he knows what he's doing. So quickly, it, it happens that this character has committed like the one crime that all the criminals in prison can't tolerate, uh, and that is and that is uh, child molestation, uh, sexual abuse of a child. So um, oh, oh, and really, uh, it's <clears throat> it's 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 an interesting dilemma to really find yourself in in prison because it does seem to be the the one crime kind of universally hailed by even inmates to be simply and undeniably unforgivable not too indifferent to the worldview outside of the bars too so yeah uh it's just it, it's a very sticky situation to find oneself in once you are now behind the bars but we have to also you know things are not Nothing in this movie is as it seems. Um, Absolutely in, in, not. In many ways, uh, like many prison movies, there te- there are layers, there are tears to it. Um, one of the trickier things that I actually uh, that I actually either forget or only recently learned is um, is that Pinheiro himself. You know, this is a guy who had stories. In the Pinero, in the film, the the Achaso film Pinero, they do they do show scenes where he was he was turning tricks by uh, you know underage tricks when he was a kid in uh, in the Deuce. There are points um, there are points in Miguel Pinero's real life where he was actually sexually active with underage boys. Mm-hmm. It has to be it has to be said when Achaso wanted to tell the story in the film Pinheiro, which is a mostly laudatory film, but it does speak to exactly how complicated and conflicted Miguel Pinheiro was. Um, John Leguizamo was actually up for the part, and he backed out in part because of this. He said he uh, he didn't he, he as fascinating as important as Pinheiro was to him as somebody as a writer of the time when 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 John Leguizamo was coming up, he didn't want to portray a, a Latino character quite that complicated or she's i i think he actually used the term like disgusting or sleazy so there's a lot about this character and 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 my interpretation of uh, of short eyes that's important is that um miguel pinero was not simply defined by his sexual inclinations uh he was not simply bisexual he was not simply anything much in the way that sexuality within the prison context is not uh is not a black and white thing Sure. One of the one of the luxuries that that um that one of the luxuries that especially straight you know straight cis men uh, have is pretending that sexuality is simple. 
Uh, and many of the many of the LGBT people I've known, including my mentor, have always pointed out that it's not it's not that. And in the prison context, I mean, in every single prison context that speaks to sexuality, even in the Eddie Bunker books, you know, uh, the character that Dustin Hoffman plays in in short in short uh, in short time, excuse me, in straight time, going back <laughs> to No Be So Fierce, the book, you know. They talk about the old man that they had sex with, that you know, who, who was who was their bottom in in prison and getting out of prison. Even in the Eddie Bunker books, it's like, well, I want to have sex with a woman because that's a different level on the scale. Like that's the that's a higher that, that, that's a that's more of a prize. I could have sex with a man getting out of prison because obviously being the penetrator, being the you know, being the top is more is 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 the more important part. But the point that this, the point that I'm getting at is that the sexuality is, is much more muddled, much more confused. And we will see that in this movie, especially with the character of cupcakes, who is the Tito Goya character, who, yeah. um, who is the desired character. Uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that point. It's my favorite dramatic point in this whole film is, is uh, concerns cupcakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so immediately, as soon as Clark Davis has been outed by Mr. Net by the by the guard, immediately there's action to uh, to take him down, and um, and and it's it's actually Gogo Miguel, the character that Miguel Pinheiro himself first first plays, uh, who who is trying to is trying to, to to move at him, is trying to assault him or kill him, uh, who is then stopped by Curtis Mayfield. Now Curtis Mayfield, the mm-hmm. Curtis Mayfield, like maybe the greatest soul singer of all time uh, is a big part of this production as part of the, how it got made. Not only was, was his, was the producer of the movie, the guy behind um, the guy behind Superfly, but Kurt home, the, uh, the, the, the record label that um, the record label that, that Curtis Mayfield was known for his own imprint. Yes. They put, they put money into this production, mm-hmm. by the way, by the way, there's, there's that. There's the uh, soundtrack. Wow. I'll post pictures on social media. Um, Kurtome bankrolled a bunch of this movie, and this movie, and how it was handled, and how badly it was handled, helped bankrupt the record label. Yeah. Uh, the soundtrack that I'm holding in my hands right now uh, was produced in such massive quantities by a company that was convinced that Short Eyes was going to be as big as Superfly. That it, it, like this record is still pretty easy to find cheap, but. Yeah. In the process, it actually it actually kind of screwed the record label over. Yeah, so immensely. one of the old one of the older uh, and obviously more powerful characters is Pappy, played by um, played by Curtis Mayfield, who basically says, "No kid is going to give up a shot of life on this floor." Um, to Gogo, the Pinheiro character, saying, "You're not killing anybody. Like I, I, I don't want any. I don't want any murders on this floor. Right. Um, and I'm the one who's going to say that. Uh, it should be noted that a lot of um, Pinheiro's style in writing in in poetry comes from the African American prison toast oral tradition. Like that was a huge element. So the black characters, despite the preponderance of Puerto Ricans in this movie, including uh, a very young Luis Guzman, uh, yes. often, wear, often wearing a towel. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and quite a fro, if I say so myself. Yes. He's got a nice blowout. Um, there's, a, there's a significant, I'm not just saying this because this is February, um, there's a significant <laughs> element of black culture, uh, of black African-American culture, uh, not just in the prison uh not just in the prison setting, not just in this movie, but in in the cultural basis for what 
uh, Pinheiro's writing was. So uh, he basically um, he basically stops it, and then you get the the music scene that that that, that focuses on that that leads into what the soundtrack would later put out a uh, an unbelievable scene where. Freddie Fender, of all people. Yes. Um, Freddie Fender, uh, if you're not familiar with him, was a Tejano and country star. Tejano being uh, the Mexican-American. Really, uh, it's, it's a border culture uh, product from Texas. He was a country and kind of like a pop country star. I think – I want to say his biggest hit was uh, Until the Next Teardrop Falls, um, which he sang uh, you know, in the period of time in the 70s. Uh, when country was really, really big from the 70s into the middle 80s, um, it had a big hit with this. And it was notable because it's it's a dramatic kind of drippy uh, country song. It's not a bad song. I shouldn't say that, even though my, my favorite version is by Manic Hispanic. Uh, that's another story. Um, Latino punk band or Chicano punk band from the West Coast. Um, he, but it's notable that Freddie Fender actually switches in the song between English and Spanish. That was, that, that was notable and also notable in, you know, in the context of the seventies and, and, and more awareness towards, um, you know, uh, Latin American uh, people and Latino people in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this scene in particular that you're talking about um, is this uh, sort of impromptu uh, musical number in it. And, it, you know, it, it, it sets a tone on this floor where you can clearly see that there's a hierarchy on this floor. There's division. Um, there's uh, not so subtle racism, definitely, between the groups. But they all adhere to a certain coda. I think that's fair to say. They're all agreeing that there are certain things that you do and you don't do here, especially if you're going to be residing on this particular floor. But where all of that sort of washes away and they all kind of come together as sort of this, you know, island of misfit toys, this kind of uh, family, if you will, is this musical moment where Freddie Fender sings Break of Dawn, as you were mentioning, kind of jumping back and forth between English and Spanish, and then Curtis Mayfield jumping in, uh, you know, with his own song. And it really brings the prisoners all together. You can see it in sort of their head bopping. Everybody's kind of grooving together, the whites, African-Americans, and Puerto Ricans collectively. It's really the film's most touching moment um, in, you know, a film that's very bleak and very harrowing and this is really you know i would say the only true light that we get in it um which is tough stuff but it's a beautiful beautiful scene and and uh, freddie fender and curtis mayfield are just fantastic in it i don't think i mean 100 percent. It, it literally it, it's a scene like to rewind it's a scene that still gives me chills yeah um it was one of the things that you know it's kind of clear like uh it's kind of clear watching it. It's one of the things that they were trying to bankroll the movie on, but um, I've never heard any, I mean, most of Freddie Fender's material is Tejano country. It, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's straightforward country. I've never heard Freddie Fender do anything like it. One of the un unfortunate parts about the soundtrack, though I do recommend it highly. It does have the song that Mayfield does due to WAP is strong in here is one of his uh, lesser known classics, beautiful song, slow burn song, yeah. but the, uh, it's Mayfield who actually sings the song Break It Down that Freddie Fender does on the soundtrack. So unfortunately, the only place you can hear this really beautifully impassioned and acted Freddie Fender song is in the movie. Yeah. Um, so that seems, really like it seems cheesy to say, but it really just kind of lays on that layer that like 
uh, music being this sort of universal language yep. amongst people, especially in the prison. That's really bringing them together because it, it, it very rarely, if at all, in the in the duration of the film, do you see them bond the way that they do. I don't think that you really see it on a level like this again. So I, that's why the music is great. Sure. And, and, and the performances that they're giving are great, but it's just kind of like this feeling that you're left with after it. It's like, huh, like, you know, maybe there's hope, maybe, you know, right, right. It's prison. It's prison entertainment. But so, so Pappy, uh, prison entertainment. It also, it, it, I mean, it's, it's probably got a name in terms of people who write these movies. It's yeah. like a, it kind of a cooling, passage um that that will bridge some of the more dramatic scenes i mean a lot of these movies have it it's very often a boxing scene like it is in on the yard um yeah. which is which it, it's a cooling scene but it's a scene uh, of entertainment where things can happen um things can happen that set up the next scene and and in the middle of this of this music sequence which you know mike i totally agree with mike on this it's strong enough that even the guards are into it you see the guards enjoying the songs that they're singing um and it's not in like an 80s music video type of way it's just kind of like hey you know play some drums, you know, tap out some drums on the, uh, on, on the table you're sitting at or sing over the instrumental on the radio. That's really what happens. Yeah. But Gogo, the Pinheiro character, and I think it's Willie Hernandez, his, his bunk bait and, 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 you know, the, the dynamite brothers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, they, they, they take a shank and, and plant it in Pappy's, uh, in pa- under Pappy's, um, uh, mattress knowing that there's going to be a search soon. So they basically frame Pappy, the, um, the, the Curtis Mayfield character, he goes away and now you've lost the, you know, so the so-called moral center, the guy who was the peacemaker and kept the peace and said this Clark Davis, you know, this, this short, this quote, short eyes freak, um, is, uh, is now, um, is now uh, up for the t- up for the taking. You know, it's now a more lawless place, and they've ratcheted up the intensity. So uh, there's a re- then there's repercussions. You know, standard prison thing where uh, Gogo, the Pinheiro character, has his arm broken by uh, by being shoved into um, into a a, 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 like cell. a cell door. Yeah, one of the cell doors. They shove his arm in as it's closing. Um, so then, okay, so that gets Pinheiro out of the picture as well. And then there's this incredible dramatic scene where um, uh, I, I think they've just eaten and um, they're clearing out the uh, the area that they've eaten in. And it's just Juan, the Jose Perez character, and Clark Davis and Davison. Yeah. And this is the scene where Juan exposes himself as more patient and more thoughtful and more studious and actually asks him what the hell the story is because Clark Davis is shown as being an incredibly conflicted character who clearly has a basis in, in molestation, but he's not sure what happened. He doesn't know why he's there, but he's not even sure he's guilty of the crime. Exactly. Right. And I think that that's the important thing is, um, the Davis character, when he gets there, he's obviously in prison because he's accused of something. And the fact that he's exposed by the guard early on and everybody knowing he he's, you know, he he's public enemy number one on that criminal floor. He is guilty in the eyes of the prison as far as they're concerned. But up until this point, even from his introduction all the way to this very, very integral scene, which I think is the scene of the film, 
we don't know. It's still very vague and gray. We don't know if Davis is or is not guilty of this crime. And as you were saying, um, uh, um, Juan finally uh, kind of has the gall to ask him, did you do it or did you not do it? And again, it's kind of played in these vague sort of gray shades um, to the point where, uh, you know, Davison is unsure. He doesn't know if he did it or not. So uh, he's visibly shaken um, by this moment. And there's the, it, again, this is a very extended moment in a common area that grows increasingly uncomfortable as as Juan asks him this question, you know, uh, again, Clark's unsure if he did this or not, but you can tell he's yearning for some sort of human connection at this point. And in, in doing so, he kind of retells a series of incidents throughout his life to Juan. That's clearly demonstrating, demonstrating uh, a behavior, um, that's disturbing to say the least. Uh, this sequence is like slowly ripping off the most painful band-aid as Juan remains silent and is attentive to this story, but is becoming visibly upset by its development. Not really too uncommon to how I was feeling. And I've seen this film before, but it was just kind of hitting at a different level. And again, just a, a real testament to these performances, uh, just incredible, um, but again, it's this film is increasingly bold in its ability to not pass any judgment on any of these very flawed sure. characters. I think that that's very important to drive home. Even Davis, who is guilty of seemingly the unforgivable, maybe, maybe not, right? Um, but Juan, even when he's told all this information and he has kind of like an emotional breakdown himself over being told of this, he keeps this information to himself. You know, again, this could be something that could be used as as prison gossip to just kind of, you know, put Davis, you know, even even, you know, deeper on, you know, the 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 list of, you know, things that the other prisoners hate about him. But he doesn't. He keeps this very troubling, um, disturbing information to himself because I think that he already recognizes what's going on. You know, this guy has it hard enough. Like, I don't you know, there's no reason for me to kind of go on um and make the situation uh, even harder. Uh, but, you know, later in the common area, Davis uh, becomes the target of the rest of the floor again. Uh, and it's really rough to watch this verbal takedown that grows physical on Davis. So, you know, while I think it's fair to say that while opinions may have formed uh, by the viewers, um, especially uh, the admission to Juan about Davis's past crimes, the physical harm that we're fo forced now to endure, you know, it's it's no easier to watch now that we know, oh, well, this guy has done very questionable things. But again, there's no there's no judgment being made about these guys. Everything's painted very gray. So it's it's an incredibly challenging sequence to watch, an integral sequence and arguably the best sequence of the film. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, the, uh, the thing, the thing about that sequence between, between Davis and Juan, uh, between Clark and Juan is, is that, um, I mean, besides the fact that it is an unbelievable powerhouse performance about, about, you know, by Davis, he's explaining things that he's done 
and and you can see that this character is is understanding exactly you know slowly understanding how much peril he's really in in this in 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 prison in this new milieu but he's also like incredibly human about it it's very hard to both it's very hard to really know what to think of 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 davis as a character because he's so upfront about knowing he says i know crazy people i read somewhere that crazy people don't know that they're crazy I know what I'm doing is wrong, and yet I couldn't stop myself. And it right. also it also sets up Juan, Jose Perez's character. I mean, you're getting so much more, so much more character development out of this than your average prison movie already. Yeah. But it sets up Juan as the as as a very intellectual and very mature character in this prison, um, because he's ready to to hear this. He says to to, to Davis, he says, you know. The guilt is all over your face. You're like one of these guys at the encounter sessions who's ready to dump all their shit on someone else. But again, they're all in prison. And even though Clark is is a target for this, for what he's done and for his uh, standing out, that's the thing. You know, he Anish Carb, uh, the the the, the long shoe character, initially invites him in. You're white. You sit with us. You sit with the whites. But right. all of a sudden, knowing that he's a short eyes. Now he stands out, and he's not affiliated with anyone else, and that's where the real peril lies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to double back on what you said about Juan's character, again, he is very much um, a reflection of Miguel Pinedo, um, or at least a facet uh, of him. Um, he really uh, Juan's character is really seen as the poet of the prison, a guru. Really, you know, he's intelligent. He strives for fairness in a similar way the, to Pappy, and he ultimately aims to do what's right in this sort of, you know, <laughs> fucked up situation that they're all in. Um, he's strongly opinionated. He's a free thinker. Even going so far, at one point, he angrily tells Longshu to never attempt to think for him. When uh, Longshu is trying to uh, convince him to not see people that are coming to visit him in lockup, he really puts his foot in the ground there, just being like, dude, don't tell me what to think, you know? So he's very opinionated and strong-willed, and I think that that's a whole other layer of this character that's, you know, great and, and really beautiful. Absolutely. I mean, it really, like, I I like Perez a lot as an actor. This This role... And I will say Steambath. Steambath is an incredible play that was shot for a TV movie. They're really the ones to go to for, you know, for Perez, who's great in smaller roles, but that was the majority of the rest of his career. Um, moving on. So what you were saying, that's an, uh, another scene, another device that I, I don't think I've seen in other, in other prison films um, where uh, basically um, – in, 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 you know, moving down in a, in a later scene, a slightly later scene, there is an exchange between Longshu and uh, and Wan, where each of them gets a visit. So each of them gets a visit, and they're in the midst of knowing that this thing is going to go down with Clark Davis, one way or the other. Something's going to happen. Um, even though Wan uh, at one point says, you know, to Davis, you're making me make a stand because of you. And it's not exactly clear what that stand's going to be, but he has a little bit of understanding of this character, and you can see the beginning of some kind of sympathy. Where that's going to go, it's totally unclear. But what happens is both Longshu and Wan get a visit. Someone comes to visit them. Longshu immediately rejects his visit, says, I don't care, I don't whatever. But then he tries to stop Juan from talking to his people under the auspices of something that goes on in this side 
out of the world is one thing, but something that goes on, it's almost offensive towards the prison environment, towards the milieu of being locked up. We can't taint what's going on in here with the outside world. Whereas so many prison movies talk about, oh, that's the world, you're out there, but in, in here time stops. This is actually talking about how what's going on inside here has to be protected. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that this is, I think that this is really um, short eyes as greatest strengths. It's, it's moments like this, the exchange between Davis and Juan, the, this film is incredibly bold. It's an incredibly bold thing because it's really, and I, and I know that this is like sort of terminology that people try and use to kind of, you know, brag or kind of demonstrate the authenticity of their films, but short eyes really gets it in spades. They're really putting our heads into like the deepest, darkest crevices of this world. You know, for better or worse, this is what it is. And you know what? If you were a prisoner, these are exchanges that you may or may not have to have had to deal with at one point. You know, like there are decisions to be made. There are, you know, at some time stances that need to be made that can reflect, you know, your life in these situations. And I don't think that, you know, I think that lesser um, skilled filmmakers or maybe um less strong material would not have been as daring enough to take us there. But short eyes really does it and does it with its head, you know, it's head raised high and it, it's, it's a profound piece uh, really unlike any other prison movie that tries to go to these places. I totally agree. Uh, and, and, and moving along, I just want to, you know, you want to get into some of the dynamic between, um, between Paco and uh and and cupcakes cupcakes right, because it, it, cupcakes yeah as we're yeah we're going to talk about this because cupcakes we since uh since the start of this discussion we've been really focused on the clark davis character who is uh the titular uh short eyes he is the you know the questionable child molester so again he is more or less our vessel into this world. He's like a first time, you know, uh, person in prison. So we're kind of seeing things and learning the ropes as much as he is to the dynamics of it. But there is um, really a separate, uh, you know, survival journey going on here. And it's cupcakes. It's really him, too. I really think that this film is, is about two very different paths and two di very um unique you know there there there's common ground between the characters here they're both striving to survive in their own unique ways um but again it's very easy to maybe justify or say that this film is clark davis's journey but i would say that this film is very much about two different paths here and, and cupcakes is that other character that we're going to talk about so please it, it uh, of course it, it, it there's a lot about this movie and it doesn't become obvious uh i think until a lot of this movie really unfolds slowly to its credit but um as much as there isn't in either of these movies there isn't really the singular protagonist there isn't sing like the one character who you care about the most as much as it's prison procedural things start things are in progress for some people some faster than others and they continue the whole idea of so many prison movies is that the prison's always there the time has always got to be done etc but looking at cupcakes julio cupcakes uh and clark davis as the two characters who are there for the short period of time um right. is really important and Cupcakes is like uh, like Pinheiro, uh, Tito Goya is a diminutive guy. I believe he was born Andrew Butler on Long Island, by the way, um, hmm. uh, but clearly Latino as well, um, despite the name. He, uh, he is 
treat it as the trophy. And, um, and, right. and, and, uh, and basically there's already all these overtures, particularly from Paco, where he's looking and he's leering in the music sequence. He's leering at, at, a, at, a, at, at cupcakes in such a way where it's really obvious that he's, he's being driven by lust. And there, right. and, and really the, the Maybe not the maybe not the, the the climax of what goes on between them, no pun intended, uh, is is the point in the seat in the shower, which is mostly done in Spanish. Um, the New Year and again and cupcakes. I I think that we would be hard pressed to say like he's probably no more than eighteen years old. He he is a young kid here. He he's he's certainly younger than the other guys. He's he's a pretty good looking uh, kid, yeah. but yeah, he he's definitely of a much younger age demographic than these guys. So again, this is all going towards um, what Dino was saying about him kind of being the trophy, uh, specifically to Paco. Yeah, he was in his twenties. He was born in fifty one. Tito Goya was, but he's he's he looks he looks young, yeah, uh, and diminutive. But he's you know he's a pretty man at the same time, and that is said in very aggressive terms in a shower. When Paco is addressing him, saying, "You know, you're driving me crazy," and so forth, and pa- and and C- Cupcakes is trying to push him away, trying to say, "You know, I'm not that way. I don't do that." And the point is made. You know, uh, he, he says, "Maybe I feel a little bit better saying maricon than you know than saying." Yeah, fat. we're we're gonna try and yeah. be uh, delicate about the terminology used here. Look. But but anyway, nonetheless, again, it's underscoring this complicated form of sexuality, of dominance, of um, of affection in some way, maybe violent affection, maybe rape. But the Paco character is basically saying, um, is basically professing how much he wants him, you know, physically, but then saying, "I could take it from you, right. but I don't, but I don't want to hurt you." And so it's very complicated, like whatever these – meanwhile, Cupcakes is resisting. Meanwhile, they gave him the nickname Cupcakes in a scene we'll get to in a second. But um, it's very complicated, and, and it's very much like he doesn't want to be stuff. He doesn't want to be uh, – he doesn't want to be uh, – belong to Paco in any way, nor have, um, nor have sex with Paco. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it goes without saying that there is uh, tremendous confusion – and hypocrisy here from Paco, or at least we can we can surmise that from Cupcakes's perspective, uh, as you said. Paco, is it really hypocrisy? That's the question. I mean, in this in this milieu, when things operate in such a gray area, because they do call, uh, you know, I, I not to take the wind out of your sails. I want to, you no, know, no. Go, let's go back to that. But they do call the short eyes. They he's the guy they call a faggot. Okay. Right. And, and forgive me for I try not to say that, but that's the term that's used, and they put him down in that way. Whether right. or not these are men having sex with men, right? That's a whole different thing. This yeah, is a very, I, I, it's a variable for, scale here, for sure. And and I and I and I mean hypocrisy just in the sense of how we can maybe perceive uh, perceive it from Cupcakes's perspective, uh, as you can see. In this exchange, um, you know, as you mentioned, Paco insists, don't make me take you the hard way. If you considered me your brother, or uh, Cupcakes even asks him, if you considered me your brother, would you be trying this shit? And then Paco responds, if my brother were as pretty as you, yeah. After Cupcakes only calls him sick, kind of striking at his, you know, mental state, Paco really loses it and says, don't you ever call me sick. I'm sick because I'm in love with you kind of angrily questioning his motives at this point when you kind of know that he basically just insisted that I want to be with you, but if you're not willing to do this 
willingly, I- I'm willing to take it. So he yeah. uses it and, and uh, Cupcakes kind of calls him out on that, you know, kind of uh, kind of boldly. He goes, you use words you don't even know the meaning of brother love. Why don't you mess with that gringo who messes with little girls because he's white and you're scared of whitey. A very valid point in all of this. But again, Paco insists, you know, kind of this hyper masculinity that he's not scared of any man or God. But to prove to Cupcakes he is a man, he wants to show that. He's a man that's watching out for him. He's going to go now to take Clark down and he's going to help him as in cupcakes is going to help him. And at this point, there's a lot going on here. And this is where I feel like hypocrisy might be too sharp of a term, but there's definitely a lot of confusion here. All in this tight exchange, he just had a very dominating man come up to him in the showers, professing his interpretation of love to him when cupcakes kind of resists that because this has been an ongoing thing now it's only to this point where it's come to a head but as you can as you noted um in the musical sequence with freddie fender and curtis mayfeld paco's kind of glaring at him cupcakes is constantly being touched and prodded by paco even from the opening sequence when when we're first introduced to the floor paco kind of grabs at his ass a little bit and juan even says why do you have to do this every morning to this kid so it's it's there we kind of see it there but you don't really think so much into it because we're kind of so I guess, hyper-focused onto Davis's journey, and it's only until this shower exchange that it really comes to a head. So, again, it's got to be very confusing, because, again, going back to this this very separate path, these two paths in this film, Davis is trying to survive in this world where he is literally and utterly alone— and Cupcakes' dilemma is, well, he has support. You know, he's, you know, he's coming from, you know, a Spanish culture. He, he's a Puerto Rican. He's kind of, he, he's taken in by the Puerto Ricans. So he's playing this, this very delicate kind of wire act of trying to staying, you know, within people that can potentially protect him, have friends in there. But he's also trying to ward off, like, trying to, you know, balance that line between friendship and, you know, a potential unwanted lover or rapist, if you. So, again, it's it's two very, very different and delicate kinds of survival from these two characters. Absolutely. And, again, everything here can be complicated further. And, and yeah. I think in the, in the milieu of prison, in the milieu of, of really of, of, of same-sex male relationships – um, I want to say one of the things I like that Robert M. Young says, a quote from him is, everything exists in prison, even love, just different. And he also says it's distorted. The yeah. other thing is, is, that, is the potential that, you know, if, if, pa, if Cupcase goes with, with, with Paco, Paco is going to protect him. And protection is no small thing, obviously, as we see in, in prison environments. There is a um, there is a long tradition. I always think of, um, I mean, from my understanding, in, stu- in studying uh, in studying, you know, some of the gay history stuff, uh, George Chauncey, what have you. But going back to uh, going back to um, like the 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 hobos and whatnot. There's a long tradition of of um, mentorship, I should say, between uh, men who have sex with men. The, 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 the old hobo, um, it, it, and it's interesting, if you, I don't know if you've seen uh, Emperor of the North, um, no. recommended highly. 
there isn't really a sexual subtext in it. You can kind of see it, though. But it's a hobo story, and the old hobo story mimics a lot of what happens in prisons. It is the wolf and punk stereotypes, okay? The wolf is the older man. The punk is the younger one, and, and the, the younger and experienced one. And even though sex might be exchanged between one and the other, and often was in these traditional, you know, I shouldn't say traditional, but they go back really far. This, I mean, we're talking about hobos, you know, maybe even in the 1800s, um, maybe even before names like before terminology like homosexual and heterosexual existed. Obviously, everything you know, pe human beings were doing whatever uh, all the time in history. Right. That, those relationships, especially in environments where you needed someone older to show you the ropes, they often involved sexual exchange. By uh, along with the exchange of experience, along with the exchange of I'm older and I'm going to protect you. So there is that layer also potentially in this prison scene. Anyway, I want to uh, just, just to keep moving because because obviously this is a loaded film. There's a lot. This we is can a very about. loaded film. It's but a then, loaded but film, but it's also a fascinating one. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, again, it's it's like you know we're talking about this sequence and it, it it's a it's a powerful sequence here. There's a lot going on. But the sequence isn't over. <laughs> we did not get to the end of that sequence. Um, after Paco finally does leave Cupcakes in the shower, Omar, um, who is really not uh, the smartest inmate um, of he the says population. he's not the smartest guy in yeah, the world. Yeah, he, he's, he's not the smartest. And there was uh, very early on in this film, he, he's not the smartest, but there's a very early exchange in the beginning as we're establishing kind of, you know, uh, the dynamic of this prison and being introduced to the prison population. Um, I love this sequence um, when El Harahim screams for the inmates to better themselves rather than poisoning their minds or beating their meat. He says, the time for Whitey is almost up. And in response from a separate cell, Omar cell specifically, he states he's hardly the smartest, and uh, but he does demonstrate uh, this most intelligent and honest moment for himself when he says he's a hope to die dope fiend for life because he likes being one and nothing will ever change that. If the time comes when he wants to become a black god or a panther, he'll do it, but not because he's being called ignorant right now. And it's just this exchange because the rest of the time you you really see him not, you know, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed in, you know, in the vast majority of these characters. But in this moment, you know, it, it's just it's merely just a, like a, an angry retort to El Rahim. But it's so brutally honest and kind of funny. But uh, yeah, you it's, it's his best moment. But. It's that character uh, specifically um, that we see again when Paco leaves Cupcakes in the shower. Omar comes in and he attempts to advise him that he needs to really fight back like a man um, eventually before commenting on Cupcakes' looks and his own desires for him. So at first it just seems like another concerned prisoner who's in there just trying to give him, you know, brotherly advice, if anything. Um and then it kind of dwindles into like, you know, him kind of, you know, puckering his lips and, you know, kind of sending off a kiss at him. So, again, th this is sort of, um, you know, it's this, you know, pursuit for Cupcakes that Cupcakes is dealing with on all cylinders. I mean, everywhere he turns, he's constantly being pursued by these people. So there's really like 
there's no true friends here. So it, it becomes a very, very confusing and exhausting thing for this kid in as much as Davis's journey is, is just as terrifying, but on a completely different level. Absolutely. The El Rahim character, you know, the Donna Blakely character is the token black nationalist who gets mad at the men for being too teasing or being too sexual by, you know, what kind of original black man talk is that is what he yells at them. Um, Leading into uh, one of the one of the other really strong dramatic scenes in this movie um, is the council discussion, where they literally have the discussion between the white representative, the Puerto Rican representative, and the black representative. Which Paco, who is not one of those representatives, tears the whole thing apart. Yeah. So Kenny Stewart, by the way, Ken Stewart, who plays o- Omar in that scene where he comes in saying, "Look." You got to, you know, to get Paco off. All you're going to do is swing and keep swinging. You can do it. And then, you know, he looks down because Paco, because Cupcakes happens to be either in a towel or naked, and he propositions him. One of the best parts of this whole movie to me, because I am interested in the full range of male sexuality, performative and otherwise, um, and I think it's so rarely addressed, is this moment where Paco, this cut the shit moment, as much as Paco is the criminal, he basically strips back every single person in the yeah. con- it's it's on the table where they actually have a, a a roach a betting roach race earlier. Um, it's around that table, uh, and he basically strips down every character. Cupcakes is called Cupcakes because Ice Nathan George, his girl on the uh, his girl out on the streets is named Cupcakes. He gave him his girl's name. Right. Uh, Kenny, obviously, uh, I'm sorry, Omar, Kenny Stewart, who, by the way, is only he was a member of the family as far as he was in the original cast. He's only has one other credit and he's really good in this, yeah. even though he doesn't have a lot to do. He's really good in this. Yeah. The, the only other thing that he appeared in was a TV show called Almost There in 1989. Yep. So, yeah, it yep. just completely disappeared for the better part of a decade before that minor appearance. And that's unfortunately a bunch of these guys. Um so El Rahim, you know, is exposed by Paco as, you know, put you know, oh, you, you think you're all that, you know, and basically Paco makes the point to Cupcakes, who for one reason or another, he, he's been naive. We were yeah, led to they believe all he's want naive something from you. They all they all want to fuck him, basically. Yeah. That's what it is. And and what's important about that, again, beyond the layers of how do you identify? What's your sexuality? What do you like? Well, you know, how do you get yourself off when you're in this prison environment? That's commerce. And, and I think we're going to get to that. Uh, we are going to get to another movie, I promise. Uh, I think we're going to get to that. I think commerce is really at the core of On the Yard. But that's what that's how you do business in this in this setting. And there's this just amazing. I, I to me, that might be my favorite scene in the whole film. The point at which beyond every single person and the front that they put on about being educated or about being uh, above this or above that, Paco strips them all down and he says, everybody wants to fuck you, cupcakes. And then he looks around and he says, no one's saying anything. So to right. say, like, I cut through all of it. And, right. and, and to me, that's just like – that's the dramatic bent that like kills me about this movie. Cause it's like, that's what you have to deal with. And the fact that Pinheiro and young isolated a prison movie and broke it and brought it all down, boiled it down to that moment. Like that's what makes this drama so damn effective to me. That yeah. realization that cupcakes is like, I'm going to have to make a choice. If I'm staying here, I'm going to have to make a choice. 
Right. And, uh, and, and, and I like, to me, that's it. That is just so unbelievably powerful. Then it moves. So basically Juan, Juan is tricked. He's still sticking up for, um, again, Again, this so is ahead. just a, a kind yeah. of like a like a shot at Paco's kind of ego. There is a brief silence, but then Juan finally does respond, calling him sick again. Again, kind yep. of you know striking at his mental state, which is obviously a sore subject for Paco. Yep. Which is again a whole layer of something that's just kind of hinted at that it doesn't get fully explored. But again, enough where you're questioning my mental capability. So that that's a big, big, you know, hurt to his pride. And it's there um, at that moment where, you know, again, this whole council meeting is, as you said, brought together to discuss wiping out Davis. Mm -hmm. um, and when uh, Juan is, of course, you know, called out uh, by Paco, just as everybody else is about their affections for cupcakes. Um, the only person that seems to soften up is ice. He thinks that they're also, you know, becoming like monsters, but almost as quickly as he seemingly sides with Juan, he takes it right, right back. It's almost like he comes to a realization that, or it could unlike, be a trick. It could yeah, be a trick. It could yeah. be a trick again, layers here. There's just, mm -hmm. there's just a lot of mental things going on here. He takes it right back. It could be a trick, but there also, there, there does seem to be some realization, whether it's, you know, conscious or subconsciously where he almost realizes ice, like, he has no life outside, whereas Juan, you know, he's kind of going back and forth. You see a sequence where he kind of comes back onto the floor saying that he had discussions with his lawyers about how to fight these charges the best way. There seems to be like a possibility that Juan has a real chance of getting out and starting a life. And that's more than somebody like Ice or a lot of other people on this floor seem to have. So Ice, you know, takes it back and Juan kind of stands alone now where it's all but agreed upon that Davis is going to be targeted and wiped out. But again, playing in gray shades and vagueness here, we don't know exactly what that means. Are they going to rape him? Are they going to murder him? We don't really know what that means up until this point. Right. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I, again, I'm going to use, I'm going to use the term. I don't want to say, but the, the other F term, I'm just going back to the play itself um, because the whole point of the council meeting um, oh, yeah. What I wanted to say was Cupcakes and Davis are liminal characters. They're yeah. the ones who are on the edges of this. Cupcakes may be getting out. He hasn't totally committed to this. OK. And Davis, there's a point in this movie where it, you know, Davis, they rush the P.I. They, you know, and they rush the lineup. So, so Juan concludes, oh, you're going to have a chance to get back out. And maybe scar up some other girls' little some other little girls' minds. Um, basically, in this in this council sequence, um, just looking at the play itself, uh, Longshoe says he white like I am, and you ain't got no right according to the rules to take his back if he is stuff. There's a glossary to the play. Stuff is gay, and uh, squeeze is like effeminately gay. Yeah. Uh, or, Which, uh, again, just but just before you get back to the play, um, go ahead. In, in this exchange, I just think that it's interesting. And again, this also uh, could very much just be, um, you know, a testament to the time of how, you know, derogatory terms were used. But uh, as the council are deciding on this, Paco, once again, you know, um, kind of showing, you know, whether it's hypocrisy or just, uh, again, a, a vagueness or, you know, just being loose with his words, he claims for the reasoning for wiping Davis out is that anyone who touches little girls 
is a yes. quote faggot. So that's again, that's this, this that's the know. line. That's the line. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you, you're ahead of me, but uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, please, so, please, please, please. No, no, no. It's all good. He went like I am. So th- this is the council where where basically the white component is saying he's white, but I'm cutting him loose. Yeah. Um, Juan says stuff. He ain't stuff. Long shoe. Well, we say he is. Juan, who says he is? All oh, I say he is. Then that's that's going to be. Um, Aysel Rahim, you know, everybody in the council, including Paco, who's just there, and uh, and Omar, who's there. Paco then says, anybody who has to rape little girls is a faggot. He's stuff. Squeeze. Juan, I say he ain't. Ice, you got no say in this. Paco, oh, he's got to say. Not that it means anything, but he's got to say. So the guy who is the most sexually, in, you know, the, the – the milieu is, is as complicated as this. The guy that is as as sexually um, uh, is making the strongest sexual adva- advances to Cupcake. The most desirable yeah. desirable person there yeah, is the, the most is, aggressive of them for sure. He, he's the most aggressive, and he's the person who's putting down anybody who's outwardly gay. So right. it's you know, or who 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 acknowledges that, which is a very like victim versus oppressor type thinking. It's also the you know, it's, it speaks to the complicated sexuality that Pinheiro had, that this movie has, and these shades of gray are where the whole drama lies to me, and and, and it's it's brilliant. So basically, they decide that's it. Everything drums up. There's a the, you know the the score kind of surges, and they drag. They drag Davis onto the table, first at the beginning of the table, which is interesting that you mentioned they don't know if you're going to rape him because you could do that when he's on one end. And then there's yeah. this amazing shot, which is apparently done with a single camera being dragged on a blanket down this long bench table where they drag him down and he's screaming. And you get the, 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 you get the, the POV shot of, of Davis's face as they drag him down. And then they decide who's going to do it because they're going to kill Davis. Right. And – it's also um, under all of this, too, that it's being um, kind of surveyed by the security guard that showed Davis so much disdain and kind of outed him on the prison floor. He's over okay Mr. Net. Yeah, Mr. Net. Mr. Yes. Net. He, he's observing this with kind of this this kind of giddiness in his face like he he wants this guy to suffer as much as these prisoners. So he's kind of you know standing in the background kind of like you know surveying it and making sure that they can go on with their business yeah he's just there in this ecosystem he's just there as an observer and occasionally as an enforcer i suppose but what's happening there is 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 natural or is a natural function of the environment of this prison um and and this is this is strong stuff needless to say sure so basically El Rahim, the you know the black god, the, the Muslim who who earlier in the movie he's he's using terms like Yakub, you know he is doing a lot of the the standard black nationalist stuff of the time, not to you know not to speak down to it, uh, in in talking badly about about white characters in the prison and so forth, teasing Long Shu, uh, when when um when Davis appears he looks and he goes up oh, another devil meaning another white devil, uh, right. he's given the opportunity to cut Davis's throat and he chooses not to. He right. actually shows a vulnerability and says, if he, if I, I'd kill him, I'd kill him if I could fight him, but not like this, you're holding him all down. And it ends up becoming long shoe. It becomes the white character who says, fuck you, I'll do it. And he cuts his throat and they all step back and there's this long shot and you see the reactions on long shoes face on ice's face, El Rahim, Paco, 
Meanwhile, you know, they've dragged Juan off and Juan isn't even in the room at this point and Mr. Net and the guard. And they all either have this, this reaction of horror uh, or of satisfaction. Paco actually looks excited, maybe sexually excited. I don't know. Um, And they've killed him and they've killed him and so forth. And, uh, and the next scene that we basically get is, uh, it's a real gut punch at this point, as if any, yeah. as if what proceeded before it wasn't enough for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not really gory, but it's very, no. very, very strong. The whole movie is very strong, but you're invested because these characters are fleshed out to you, and I mean, that's that's a, that's what a movie's supposed to do. And you, and basically, you have this scene where uh, Captain Allard, the captain of the whole floor, talks to them and says, "Look." I, I've accepted that this was a this was a suicide, knowing full well that it wasn't. But then he tells everybody on the floor, including Juan, who knows the full story and hasn't really spilled on it, and probably and isn't going to, I imagine. He tells them that the 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 lineup failed, that that Clark Davis was actually innocent. He wasn't the person wanted for the crime that they were holding him for. Right. The witness made several claims against other men. Yeah. And. And and, and and now you sense like a lack of reaction because this environment just kind of did what it does. And that is almost like the outside information that Longshu was warning, warning Juan about the, you know, we did what we do. That information that works for the outside world doesn't really work for us. Um right. And, and Howard attempts uh, – the, the captain attempts to shame the men in the day room. So um, – and then we cut to uh, – and then we cut to uh, Cupcakes. Cupcakes uh, gets called out because he's been bailed out. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, this is the end of the movie. And several of the prisoners, uh, Juan, Ice, uh, Longshoe, and Paco, they all – they all tell uh, they all tell him different things when he's leaving. Um, uh, they threaten him. Ice basically says to Juan, "Like, this, listen, this kid Cupcakes listens to you. You better tell him something, or else he's going to go outside and run this down to someone who shouldn't know about it." Right. Our business doesn't leave the prison, even if Cupcakes does. Right. And it's actually the last. It's actually the last line in the play. But Juan says, "Oh, Longshu says I've killed and I, I'm ready to kill again." Okay. Mm-hmm. So like murder is not an is not a problem here. And it's very telling that in this milieu the white guy kills the white guy. Yeah. Um maybe it's to something prove, you don't see yeah, you don't anticipate that. At least but it, at le- but it underscores I'm sorry, but it, it underscores him defending his whiteness and his role as a leader of the white portion. One hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. So these are prison politics. This is, you know, the dynamic of that. Yeah. And he and and so basically he says to him um uh one one being prompted to say something to cupcakes who looks very affected i i okay i, I want to say this quickly but uh tito goya um tito goya is one of the again he was the partner uh he was the partner of of pinero in crime they were together in sing sing he is one of the mo- he only has 10 roles acting and he's one of the most affecting like characters not just in this movie but in anything his role in marathon man is melendez is unbelievable yeah. he plays two roles in a movie that pinero was also in 
Fort Apache, the Bronx, one of my all-time favorites. He plays two roles in that movie. One as a, a, a detective wearing a mustache, but earlier in the movie, he plays a cross-dresser who is trying to kill themselves. Uh, and, and he, like, he embodies a certain sadness that is, uh, that, that, that is incredible for a non, for a non-traditional untrained actor who literally, you know, they left, they left the shooting of this movie and most likely did drugs and absolutely got arrested. You know, they were in and out of jail and so forth. This movie was made and it was released in 77. Tito Goya was dead in 85, killed in prison actually. Um, and in the in the Pinheiro movie about him, Pinheiro, uh, who is known to elaborate things and work in his own f- you know fiction, he's like my best friend died in Texas today. A, a refrigerator fell on him, you know. Yeah. So like the the ideas of reality and fantasy. Tito Goya is unbelievable, but basically, uh, Juan says to him, "Oye, espera, no cora. Just one thing, brother. Your fear of this place stole your stole your spirit, and this ain't no pawn shop." And with that, Cupcakes leaves, uh, and you actually hear you hear Paco yelling. You hear Paco yelling, "I ain't lost him yet." Yeah. So to say, like the ball keeps bouncing. He might yep. be back. You know. Right. Yeah, and I, uh, that's short eyes, folks. That is, yeah. It, it suffice to say, this is a uh, a loaded film, a film that never lets the viewers off easily. It's playing in, you know, in very uh, gray strokes. It paints itself in very gray strokes. Um, you know, just to getting to that ending and kind of forcing us like Juan to carry, you know, this this weight of truth about Davis, about the crimes that he's committed. But the fact that he was incarcerated and killed in this prison for a crime that he actually didn't commit is just all sorts of just you know mashed feelings on how to feel about the subject. But we and, but we know he but we know he has a problem. Yeah, we right, know exactly. that he has committed he has mi- committed molestation. We know yeah. that he has raped children. Right. Um. And at the same time, we have we as viewers have to have a certain amount of sympathy for him because he's yeah. been murdered and he's shown the utmost amount of vulnerability right even before you know well well before he dies you know yeah yeah it's it, it, it brings it brings a lot of questions about um justice i suppose proper Ab- justice absolutely you know, you yeah. know like and I, and I think that that's really um you know it it, it it's a testament to, you know, prison politics, uh, justice, the correctional system. You know, it, it, this is a, it's a challenging film. It's a daring film. It's a bold film. Uh, it, it's it's really quite unlike any other prison drama you might see because it dares to go to those dark places and kind of, you know, not not just peek in, but to really make this place a home and these people that populate it you know, your true peers for better or worse. So it, it's, it's a stellar achievement. It is not, um, I would say it's not an easy film to watch. I mean, we, nope. we've seen, we've seen it before, but just watching it again, uh, in preparation for this episode. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a har- harrowing film for sure, but one that is, that is unbelievably effective and one that, uh, I mean, I am proud and hope that we've, you know, kind of shined, uh, a you know, a greater spotlight on. 
I have a couple extra notes I want to get to. Sure, um, sure, sure. By the way, we speak of the 70s and the black film explosion, uh, black action films of the 70s and whatnot. I don't know if there's I, – I don't, I don't know of a movie that functions as um, an equivalent for Puerto Ricans, especially New, New Ricans, uh, which was a, a, a term – a modern term at the time, the, the New York uh, – the New York Puerto Rican culture – anything like short eyes it's singular in that way um i want to say that uh miguel pinheiro was was in a bunch of other uh roles including um a pretty good uh larry cohen made for tv movie called see china and die he appears in Times square as i said ford apache the bronx is one of his best uh, dramatic roles and tito goya is in that as well he was um several of these actors including goya and pinheiro were were uh, well liked by Bonnie Timmerman, who did casting for Miami Vice. So there's a few Miami Vice episodes with each of them, and Pinheiro did write, I think, two episodes. Uh, he appears in the Jericho Mile, which I think is going to have to go on the list for 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 something I got to check out soon. He's sure. in um he has a small role in Deal Deal of the Century, a movie I've been yelling about Mike about, yes. uh, one of the most <laughs> overlooked uh, Billy Friedkin movies, and he also pops up in the Equalizer. He um. He uh, he died at 41 of cirrhosis of the liver. The way that he lived, just really, uh, just really uh, proved the way that he uh, that he passed. But um, Pinheiro was an unbelievable creative force, not just for this movie. Uh, several of the uh, the New York and Poets Cafe um, readers that Miguel Algarin put out. Um, New York and Voices is the first one from the 70s. Uh, have some of his poetry and it is still some of the most incisive, beautiful and difficult, like much like short eyes poetry about the city, uh, uh, about Latinidad, about being a Latino in the city that I've ever seen. Um, and absolutely inspirational helped form a movement with the New York and poets cafe with other people like, uh, uh, Lucky Cienfuegos, uh, Reynaldo Povod, and so forth. Uh, I want to say that Longshoe, uh, Char uh, Joe Carberry, who I think is still one of the few still alive, he's yeah. in a whole bunch of movies, including The Goodbye Girl, same year as this, 77. He's in The Amazing Night of the Juggler. As Amazing. A, as a Amazing. cop. <laughs> he also appears in Vigilante, along with uh, Don Blakely. He's in uh, The Survivors um, in 83. Missing in Action, the canon film, 84. Shot Last Mars, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he's in that. Unfortunately, uh, last exit to Brooklyn, eighty nine. An innocent man, eighty nine. Kill me again. The great, great, great John Dahl, who another person I've been yelling at Mike about. Yep, Mike, revisit him. <laughs> Kill me again in eighty nine. Uh, presumed innocent in ninety, and he also appears in Speed in nineteen ninety four. Um, yeah, I, I know we we went long on this one. This is a dense. This is a heavy movie. This movie pays off in spades. This is one of the big ones. Uh, and I I argue this is the greatest prison movie ever made. It is, uh, yeah, it, it is a, an emotionally charged film. And again, I'm just really happy that we got to talk at length about this film because it really is uh, one to be seen. But yeah, uh, you know, be forewarned. It's, this is heavy, heavy material, um, but fantastic material. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, as, as much as we are teetering into the length of our first episode, uh, we still have one other movie to talk. <laughs> so if all of you guys can, uh, you know, sit up, um, you know, stay handcuffed cause we got another thing coming for you. Uh, next up 1978's on the yard. 
Welcome to the yard, where the only way out is feet first. On the yard, it's hard. 800 hardened cars on the most dangerous patch on Earth. And when they settle their scores, they do it the hardest way of all. Maybe someday you might own the whole prison. You came into my store, and you knew the rules when you did it. Get yourself some protection, but don't hit this yard tomorrow. You're in serious trouble. The captain can order you into protective custody in exchange for any information that you can give him. You want me to snitch? Is that a crime? In here, yes. On the yard, they don't pull punches. The fuse is lit for red hot action. So, yeah, uh, next up in this kind of uh, prison double feature that we have in store for you guys uh, is On the Yard. Uh, this one, um, you know, we both picked these films because we both had an affinity for them. Um, obviously, uh, Dino kind of showcased his passion for short eyes, which, you know, I'm, I'm right there with. Uh, on the Yard, I think that I kind of take the lead on this one. I, I think that I enjoy it uh, maybe a, a smidge more than Dino. Um, but... Uh, this film first bowed out uh, on September 16th, 1978 at the Toronto International Film Festival before hitting uh, the Chicago Film Festival in October of the same year. Uh, it premiered January 19th, 1979 in New York City before going um, wide, or at least as wide as it would go, on April 27th, 1979. Um, this is the film that we spoke about earlier that is, at least retrospectively, is populated by more familiar faces than, say, Short Eyes, um, you know, say Bruce Davidson, but uh, this film is definitely populated with more familiar faces than I think, uh, you know, keen-eyed viewers would, you know, kind of notice. Stacked um, with character actors, really. Stacked, st yeah. st st I should support, okay, I'm trying not to say that. Supporting <laughs> actors. Stacked with people who did a lot of other small roles, but really, uh, I can't say it enough, these are the actors, like, these are the kind of actors that make movies. It's not leading, it's not leading actors to me. It's the guys and women who, um, who do the real work and, and, and I mean, most of this cast is that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think that it's interesting that we kind of landed on these two films, um, not only because we both, you know, obviously enjoy them and think that there's a lot to be said about them, but they have, um, very unique sort of origin stories about them, uh, similar to short eyes, uh, on the yard is actually based on a similar, uh, firsthand account. Um, Malcolm Bradley's, um, novel is about, uh, his time as an inmate in San Quentin during the mid 1960s. So you're really getting again, th this air of authenticity that kind of bleeds through short eyes and this particular, uh, production. Uh, this film was helmed, uh, by Raphael, uh, D silver, uh, Ray, if you will. Uh, he only would go on to direct one other feature, 1987's, uh, a walk on the moon. Um, while his wife, uh, the late great, uh, Joan Micklin silver, who, you know, responsible for chilly scenes of winter, which in my opinion, uh, you know, it kind of takes on 
the same sort of self-loathing um, that Woody Allen would do in some of his best work in the 70s, but I think really informed later stuff like, uh, you know, High Fidelity starring John Cusack. I see so much of chilly scenes of winter in, in that film in particular. I want to jump um, in here quick. Yeah, please, uh, please, please. Just, just uh, so, so uh, Ray... Ray Silver is, um, let me see, I think he's originally from from Ohio. He married Joan Micklin, who added the name Joan Micklin Silver. He was not originally a movie uh, a movie guy. He was not in the business. He started a um, a business called, I think it's a Midwest Land Development. He was in real estate, okay? And his real estate firm, Midwest Land Development, got big enough that at some, at some point in the 70s, he and his wife, Joan Micklin, Joan Micklin Silver, relocated to New York City. So he's making all his money in real estate. In the meantime, Joan Joan starts dabbling in in cinema, in learning film. Um, and it, she's the one who really becomes the auteur here. Yeah. Uh, I should note that Joan, uh, Joan Micklin Silver, who maybe had, uh, no, not maybe, certainly had one of the keenest eyes for relationships and depicting relationships in film. Uh, passed away at the very end of 2020 on New Year's Eve. She passed away. Uh, Ray Silver passed away in 2013. Um, could really like made some small, uh, a couple studio films, but she made some small movies primarily for the film company that she and Ray put together themselves, um, Midwest Films, because she couldn't find backing for her first film, Hester Street. Right. A great film uh, from 1979 about Jewish immigrants coming over to this country. I think uh, it's 75, by the way. I think it's a little 75. Earlier. Yeah. Yeah. No, 75. Yeah, 75. Um, yeah. A, a fantastic film that I feel like it has gone really um, kind of unnoticed uh, in the years since. Um, but it, it's a fantastic uh, film that I always try and uh, recommend to people. Um, but yeah, uh, Silver, uh, her husband, also produced... Uh, three other f features of Jones, uh, 1977's Between the Lines, uh, Crossing De Delancey in 88, and A Fish in the Bathtub uh, in 1998, which I think starred Mark Ruffalo, if I'm not mistaken. And 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 Crossing Delancey is really what she's known for, but um, yeah. uh, On the Yard on the Yard is a feature with John Hurd. John Hurd really started in part of this young stable of actors that Joan Micklin Silver worked with. Uh, and because she had Hester street is not only black and white, not only a period piece, not only is it really about immigration, uh, immigration and emigration um, and uh, acculturation, but it's actually a story about a woman divorcing her husband uh, yeah. and the idea of old world culture. It's a very, it was a film that was painted as being too ethnic, um, and that's part of the reason why Ray Silver put his money behind it and he started producing. What's interesting about On the Yard, and I know Mike will get to this, is that this is the one time they reversed the formula where he produced or exec he executive produced Crossing Delancey, which is many people will consider that a classic. Um, and, it, and, and rightfully so. Uh, Peter Rieger is fantastic in it, as is Amy Irving. Um, but he, produ he, he produced her movies – on a, for, for a period of time, but on the yard is the one one of two times he directed and she produced him. So this is really like at best this is a partnership, but most likely Joan helped direct this movie also. Yeah, and and, and really uh, a beautiful partnership. I mean, I I just think that that it, it's it's just. 
I think it's so rare in this industry, but especially when these people were doing stuff that was so obviously um, not exactly for the masses, um, just to see how well they work together and just, you know, how supportive he was of her creative endeavors. I just think that that's really beautiful about their relationship and the work that they put on um, together. Uh, again, just going back, you know, there are obviously similarities with this and Short Eyes, you know, of course, this being based on another novel that is a firsthand account of an inmate's time in prison, but it's also shot on another actual prison location. This film was shot at the State Correctional Institute of Rockview in Bellevant, uh, Pennsylvania. And again, it just adds to kind of the atmosphere here, a similar you know, in a similar way that ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains kind of informed their dreary sort of rural Pennsylvania area. The location here 100% informs everything about the picture. I'd say. I should say also that, uh, you know, I'm not going to constantly contrast this with short eyes, but it's interesting to see how the prison formula is is worked in different places. Um, The tombs is a very much a part and the fact that it's a New York city environment in, in short eyes the uh, the uh, the ethnic the ethnic and racial uh, makeup notwithstanding, this could be any prison in, in, in on the yard. It doesn't necessarily speak to Pennsylvania, but uh, th- this prison, which still exists, uh, still is active apparently, is in near State College. This is the center of Pennsylvania. It doesn't necessarily speak to Pittsburgh nor Philadelphia, but you don't get a lot of you don't get a lot of texture in terms of the the culture of the area in this prison. It's actually played relatively neutral. Yeah, for sure. I, I you know, it, it's just a it's a very dreary sort of setting. Um, and and again, I'm I'm happy you caught it right there because uh, the similarities between this and Short Eyes that's really where it ends here. As Dino mentioned, um, the the you know just how different the the prison drama formula could be changed and manipulated is very apparent here. And, uh, you know, more than anything else on the yard is about the monotony of prison life. Um, again, it's, it's definitely graced with a similar air of authenticity um, as short eyes with the examples that I mentioned, but on the yard's differences really stem from showcasing the mediocrity of imprisonment and the prisoner's indifference to their surroundings even when harm comes to one of them, um, you know, it, it, we're focusing on uh, this yard of inmates uh, and it's it's really centered on uh, Thomas G. Waits's um, chili character. Uh, he's sort of um, he's sort of a prisoner that kind of holds his head up highly and he has a sort of cushy position on the yard where he runs this you know, legitimate prison job running a storefront. He sells cigarettes with a running tab. He collects bets. He has corrupt prison guards in his pocket. Um, it isn't until Juleson, who is this prisoner, uh, becomes in debt to Chile over a pack of cigarettes. Um, but he quickly proves that he's no pushover here. It's refreshing in On the Yard. And again, the, these are these minor things that this film in particular kind of tweaks about the prison formula where it could easily fall into cliche. Um, it's refreshing that it establishes Juleson, who's played by the great late John Hurd. Again, you know, like mm-hmm. Dino said, these are the types of actors that make movies and John Hurd is a just a stunning example of that wonderful New York actor with such credits as like I mentioned uh Chilly Scenes of Winter from 1979 which was directed by Joan Micklin Silver you by the way Chilly Scenes of Winter um as much as as beloved as Crossy Delancey is 
another great film. And 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 Micklin Silver was an amazing talent. Chilly Scenes of Winter could easily be the best statement about fixation and obsession in a relationship. It is. It. I think. I. I think among the people I've really spoken to who even know the movie, which came out as head, head over heels originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people would say that's her best movie. It is, it is remarkable. Um, again, ensemble cast, John Hurd as the guy who can't let go of the girlfriend he's no longer with. Right. Uh, just fantastic. And, and I, I think at that point, you know, John Hurd was kind of spoken about like, this guy had a career ahead of him, and it shows in you know the ensuing film choices that he made: 1980s Heartbeat, 1981's Cutter's Way, uh, in '82 he would do Cat People with Paul Schrader, which I think is a very stylistic and underrated remake. Um, before he would do a cult favorite such as Chud in '84, but. Uh, again, showcasing our age here, because again, we are about a decade apart. I think people from my generation, for better or worse, probably know him best as Mr. McAllister, Kevin McAllister's father in the first two Home Alone films. I mean, that's certainly how I first knew about John Hurd. But it's telling that uh, the director of those films, Chris Columbus, cast people like John Hurd, like Catherine O'Hara, in roles, supporting roles like that, because he simply said... Those were actors that I loved. I worshipped those people. So it's very cool. But yeah, I think that's where people probably most know uh, John Hurd from, at least from my generation. But again, no, it's uh, totally uh, fair. A lot of people. I mean, uh, th- th- these movies are huge, of course. Yeah. Uh, but ju- just such an accomplished actor. You know, we, we lost John just a couple years ago. But I really try and push people to kind of go back and just see what a fantastic thespian this guy was. Um but again, this film, uh, his character, Juleson, becomes indebted to Chili over a pack of cigarettes. Um, but again, where this film, I think, kind of avoids um, a really easy uh, cliche of prison films is that it establishes his character as not some, you know, first time prison punk who might be an easy prey. No, he's actually a man who's been in this in this particular prison for three years who has kind of blended into the background and has just been quietly observing you know and i think that that really avoids a you know a prison picture stereotype or it would be you know the tommy white waits character kind of you know infringing on this you know why similar to davis's davidson's character in short eyes where he's new he doesn't know anything but he does he's very aware so it avoids these cliches um with these very minor but effective character developments i think i agree uh i, I mean the pacing of this movie as a drama um and uh it, it's fascinating it has a totally different source of tension than short eyes does but the John Hurd character, Juleson, um, we learn a few things about him. Apparently, he's killed his wife, which yeah. is only really told talked about in, in an encounter session, um, where he's even forced against his will to role play a yeah. scene with another uh, prisoner playing his wife, which is, you know, it, it's definitely like gives us a lot about that character. But he's very, he's very sullen, and he's very, um, he's very. Uh, he's very unwilling to kind of like lower himself. It's very like, he's very stubborn and it's not exactly clear why I was a little curious about, you know, what you thought about like what's behind that character. He's not new in this prison. Like you said, he's been there three years, but he refuses. Like one of the things that he refuses to do, um, which would, which would basically get him out of debt. He is so resistant to it 
that I, I, I was wondering watching this movie, is he, is, is, are these self-destructive tendencies? Has he reached the end of his rope in one way or another? I mean, there's surprises for him and he's not exactly, you know, makes, he doesn't necessarily make himself a sitting duck, but I'm curious, like what's, what do you think is behind, is going on in his head? Well, yeah, it, it's a really interesting point because on the surface, I mean, Hurd's character, he's playing a seemingly well-behaved and quiet inmate who he's trying to subscribe to some manner of principles, I, I think, as he as he doesn't, as we see in the film, he doesn't, uh, you know, bend the rules and his position in in um in the yard he he's like a job placement coordinator he kind of uh right, he kind right. of places inmates to do certain roles so it, it's a pretty privileged position uh to be in so chili um the fact that you know Juleson hurts character is indebted to chili uh and he can't he can't seem to pay up uh chili attempts to make him you know put one of his friends in uh, you know, in in a job of his choosing, and and Hurd's character re- refuses to do it. So it's like you know, Juleson's character. He's clearly a man haunted by his past crime of killing his wife, but he's like, he's achingly trying to keep that darkness at bay. He knows that he's done something terrible, and he's caught in this kind of void where he's trapped in this in this existence. But there's something somewhere in him that's like clinging on to like, ah. Uh, I'm not them. I did a terrible thing, but I'm still not them. I'm I'm not, you know, I, I need to have some sort of decency or principle that I can cling on to that makes me me and is, you know, better than them. That's how I took it, but I think that's really interesting because this comes up multiple times. The the, the character I think is Nun played by uh played by the great Richie Bright, um yeah. a, a classic New York City actor from Brooklyn. Um Panic and Needle uh, Park, Godfather the get- Trilogy. The Getaway, The Getaway. Yeah. Uh, next time you work our lock, don't leave any scratches. He's the guy who steals <laughs> the suitcase f- yeah. uh, in The Getaway. Anyway, uh, and he's also the bad guy in uh, in um, Who's the Man? The Ed Lover, mm-hmm. Dr. Dre movie, one of my favorites. Um, but, you know, that's the thing. Like, there's multiple times uh, the, the nun character, uh, you know, calls him out for being snobbish. Uh, the, the the great Mike Kellen, who, by the way, is also in Riot. He has a long history of, of great movies from just before dawn. Uh, he, he, you know, he says he's, he says to Juleson, like, why don't you just put the guy in the job? Juleson says, I don't hustle. It's simpler for me. To which red, to which red, the Mike Kellen, the character Mike Kellen is playing, the great Mike Kellen, he goes, "You don't know much, do you?" So, like after three years, like I, I, I think there's a case to be made that that, that Juleson is really obstinate, but I don't know why. And he even, and, and to your point, I'm glad you said this too. To your point with the new character, the the guy who's in prison for the first time, who apparently assaulted his wife because his wife had him arrested, right. who shares the cell with Juleson. He keeps saying things, and Juleson says, put it out of your mind. Just don't think about it. It didn't happen. Don't do this to yourself. Put it out of your mind. So we see a little bit of how he works. But the way that he's so obstinate – and, I mean, this movie isn't really about a pack of cigarettes as as much as it's about um, what goes on inside a prison. But I'm just – I'm very interested in what you you make of of John Hurd's brooding character that he plays. I, I think it's a it's a very understated performance, um, but a really 
great performance and i it's sure it's 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 certainly telling because uh uh tommy waits who obviously you know a lot of genre fans would recall from the warriors and you know and justice for all he worked with pacino and of course uh john carpenter's the thing and then of and he made a splash in um hbo's oz which is another you know prison uh prison series and of course Um, mcbain so. Yes, of course, McBain. Of course, Let's not, <laughs> let us not forget McBain. The Glickenhouse um, special, McBain. Yes, <laughs> he, you know, he's expressed in interviews and to me personally, uh, because that's a whole other story. When I met uh, Tommy Waits, uh, it was at a, you know, a, a convention of some kind, and I went there. It was. I, I, I was kind of hoping you were both in the shower, and he was, he, <laughs> and he was accosting you. Anyway, go on. Sorry. I know that would be so fitting for this episode, right? It's a method um, actor thing. Don't worry. Don't worry. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Please, people. Um, it was like a thing reunion of some kind, and uh, for as organized as I can possibly be, I had a on the yard one sheet poster that I managed to forget, and I called my wife, who I begged. I didn't really have to beg. She did it because she was awesome. She drove about 90 minutes to the hotel to just drop me off this poster just so I could have Tommy Waits sign it for me. And being there... This episode is now dedicated to your wife. This episode is now dedicated to Melissa, yes. Um, And because of that, you know, he's obviously being, you know, kind of probably overwhelmed with people that are specifically there for the thing and the warriors rightfully so and i brought him this poster and he was kind of bowled over by it because how many people are bringing him an on the yard poster uh his first you know film appearance along with james remar who plays an inmate in the film as well his uh his warriors co-star um and he told me again he stated this in interviews and personally to me that john heard is solely responsible for teaching him how to act on camera which again it's so telling because heard delivers this like i said this wonderfully understated performance um but i think the thing that's like brooding under that it's interesting because you're like he's been there three years he he you would think he knows the ins and outs or what to avoid you know he goes on to say you know i don't hustle and whatnot he has an aunt who sends him money money that he's you know come to count on but uh when um he goes to chile to get cigarettes it seems sort of like a bonehead move like why would he why would he do that after three years uh, when he could easily just go, you know, elsewhere, you know, a, a more legal, you know, a more sort of like, you know, on the level means to get cigarettes in the prison. He goes to him. I don't know if it's out of desperation or just maybe out of arrogance thinking, well, I have this money coming in from my aunt so I could easily pay this guy back. And I think I think it's kind of fascinating to just kind of look at it as just a simple misstep in living in prison where like, Oh, like I know the money's coming in. I can just get my stokes right now and pay this guy back. And I think it's just this really innocent misstep in what he's learned in prison and just have it all come crumbling down. I know that's kind of putting it rather simply, but I don't really think that there's really any other cause for us to think elsewise. But again, in theory, it is a very bonehead move from a guy who, seems to just be in the background quietly observing and taking in everything in his surroundings. He's not a dumb guy <laughs> by any no, means. No, he's he's not he's definitely not dumb. I mean he 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 works uh he you know he he managed, he does office work. He works with a typewriter. He he he's a regular at the library. Um 
but it's interesting to see that you know Chile, who we, we learn has been in facilities, has been in prisons most of his life, yeah. or you know since he was like in his teenage teen years, he knows it's a mistake. Yeah, he knows it's a mistake from the minute it happens. He's such a I want to say manipulator, but I that's that's too judgmental. He's so skilled in the commerce, like right. uh, of prison, and and I think that one of the things I I really like about this movie is how it really speaks to um, – it's just a series of businesses. It's businesses and layered corporations between – you know, if, you, if we think about the business of, of what Chili does and Tate, who is Don Blakely, again, the one connection to these two movies, yep. they're each selling cigarettes, which I, I think the cigarettes are contraband. Um, I think they're each selling cigarettes illegally. Um, but uh, their businesses and how their businesses car, you know, react with – the, the, the warden's business and the guard's business and so forth, and the way these businesses regulate each other, that to me, that, that level of commerce and how it's completely mechanical, that's what this movie is showing, and it's actually showing it really smoothly. Uh, and again, in the, under, in the understated style. Yeah, very much understated. This is by no means a flashy prison movie if there are any, uh, but it's not, it's, it's really not a flashy prison movie. It's very understated, true to Hurd's performance. Um, I do want to make a note cause you brought him up before, um, Ron F uh, Faber, who plays Manning, who was uh Juleson's first time inmate inmate mm. gives a particularly underrated turn in, you know, a film that has quite a few of them. Uh, at first glance, we really sympathize for this middle-aged, clearly scared man, pr you know, proving looks can 100% be deceiving when he reveals uh, his stepdaughter has recently run away from home uh, since he's been locked up and that he was sexually abusing her. So it's kind of mm. like the, the, the weight drops there. You're like, oh, what did this poor guy do that landed him uh, in prison? So, you know, adding even more sleaziness to this character. And again, it's really this particular character where you kind of get a real true level of sleaziness from one of the inmates. He tells Juleson he'd more than likely do it again if he were still free. So he easily is the film's like standout scumbag prisoner of this. But again, it's a very small moment that they have an exchange, um, but a memorable one, I'd say. It's not it, the, the sleaze, sleaze is not a big component of this movie. If anything, no. this movie is very it's very careful about how it applies sentimentality, but there's a sadness. There's a sadness that permeates all these characters. But again, it's I'm really struck by the commerce of it. I'm really struck by the 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 everyday, you know, I do this, I make these moves, I'm the number one in this prison, I do this, this guy has to, you know, be the enforcer for me to maintain this and so forth. It's very, the, the, the mechanical parts of how this society works is what may, is what this story is really about because it doesn't really have a lead. But uh, Sleaze is very, like, it, like, this movie, one of the things I find fascinating about it is there's abs, there's, there's almost zero sexuality in this movie. Absolutely, yeah. Which speaks to its coldness and, and the scoring also. The scoring is very like kind of sad and sentimental. Yeah, but it it's, adds, it's very moody blues for sure. Yeah, it very, it very, very much sticks to like to the idea that this is character driven, and these and these men are due in time. Yeah, and again, this is a film. Um, 
you know, as much as on the yard concerns like the daily happenings of prison life and and its many hustles, the film really provides insight into the the inner turmoil of several of the characters with, with extreme delicacy. I think, um, again, just kind of reiterating, uh, you know, Hurd's character Juleson is really trying to follow a straight path that works for him you know he's indebted to chili for these cigarettes which obviously puts him in a bind um when money uh that he you know he's obviously counted on from an aunt doesn't arrive you know it, it's really haunting you know as haunting and solitary as it is on the inside for Juleson, he gets this painful letter that he receives from his aunt that she'll no longer be able to send him money so it's just this like added demoralizer that only cements his loneliness but you know it, it not only cements his loneliness but it just it complicates his situation tenfold it just spirals the whole film into something um and again you know just kind of you know uh piggybacking on this inner tor turmoil that affects prisoners differently. This is where I think, I think that, um, the beauty of the film comes through in, uh, Chili and his right hand man, red, who again, we mentioned it was played by Mike Kellen, an extensive television and film career that dates back mm -hmm. to the 1950s, you know, appearing in everything from the Alfred Hitchcock hour uh, the twilight zone, naked city, the wackiest ship in the army. Uh, you know, he made appearances in films like freebie and the bean. God told me to from 76 yep. midnight express girlfriends, the jazz singer. And lastly, uh, right before he passed again, genre fans would remember him from Sleepaway camp, but again, a fantastic actor who, uh, when recalling the making of the film, Tommy Waits always remembered Mike Kellen. He always took his time mm -hmm. with takes. He never felt rushed, especially in a film, any film really, but a film of this particular size and scale, you're always rushed to kind of hurry, 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 you know, we're fighting time, we're fighting time. He always took his time with takes and, you know, he did it on his terms, his way, which adds to his performance here. But um, Chili and Red uh, call many of the yard's shots with their heads raised high throughout the film. But, you know, intimately, we can see uh, feeling other feelings are bruising or brewing here. Uh, Chili, when Chili's empire begins to crumble and a new inmate is placed in his single cell, Chili says he's been running joints like this since he was 14 years old, and all he has to show for it is a toilet seat cover and a line to hot water. Uh, it's a brutally honest observation um, about his life, but one that Chili is all but admitting in this little phrase right here um, that this is the only life he's ever known and will ever know. Uh, he's just completely given up on life outside the yard. So he really is just doubling down on this life. He's made for himself to, to feel alive in any way. Um, again, with red who's playing really this, you know, second in commander, um, to Chile. He's, he's pretty calm and cool amongst his peers, but he has a parole hearing that nears and it, it's, it's very clear that Red painfully desires a real life again. So he's grown, you know, when he grows emotional during this hearing in a sequence that's very reminiscent of the Shawshank Redemption. Absolutely, very, absolutely, very yeah. much so. Like I, I would be very surprised if Frank Darenbaugh did not see, you know, this film before because it, it's like eerily similar to what we get. Um, and on the yard, Red appears genuinely sorry for his crimes of writing bad checks and and theft, so much so that the viewers and the parole board, specifically the woman in this scene, there seems to be this subconscious agreement that the crimes and the time that this guy has served seems very imbalanced here, you know? Um, so what seems like a hopeful future is 
shattered eventually when Red is delivered a rejection letter alone in his cell where he once again grows emotional. You know, in a place that seems filled with hopelessness, it's sequences like Red, you know, here that demonstrates this real emotional gauntlet for inmates that's, you know, you know, not really seen in films of this ilk, I think. I agree. I, I think it's, it's notable also that, that red plays the um, he's the senior character. Yeah. And, and, and as we find out going through the movie, like red and chili are, the, they're the stable, they're the stablest characters in this. They're the, they're like the survivors. They're the guys who know how to work the system. Even if red is uh even if red is, um, is kind of like the hanger on while, while Chili's the mocker. It, it, it's like these guys know how to do that and that this is their world. So, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I want to I, I go into some of the other characters, some of the other yeah, actors please. who appear into this. Um, yeah. Cause this has got a great cast. Yeah. Uh, a couple, uh, you know, one of the guys who's in, um, who appears in, uh, in another, um, in, in Micklin Silver's or the silver, uh, the Silver's uh, universe is Lane Smith, who is yeah. in like everything. But great you know, Lane Smith. Yeah, yeah, he's in Red Dawn. He is in Between the Lines, um, which came out the year before this. Also, a really strong relationship story. It's a Boston film. Uh, a hell of an ensemble cast, including John Hurd. He's in Blue Collar, and he's in Over the Edge. And I'm only speaking about like a five, eight year space of time. Lane Smith is one of the guys in this who's had a huge career. Uh, David Clennon. Uh, is not only the link to our first episode because he, he's yep. in the stains, he's in the fabulous stains, but he's also uh, in the thing with um, with weights. Uh, he plays the uh, the psychologist in the encounter session. Like I said, Richie Bright, uh, hell of a great you know tough guy, New York actor. You, do you know how Richard Bright died? I do tell. I mean, it's like six kinds of fucked up. First of all, he was married to Ratanya Alda. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who is who's in vigilante, uh, and so is he. Um, but uh, he um he got hit by like uh, he got hit by a bus in Manhattan and was like oh, dragged. Right. He was dragged for a couple blocks. It's really like for like a for like a tough guy, a real life tough guy, hard edged New York City actor. Like the fact that New York City just swallowed him up uh, is just go. Uh, yeah, apparently like um. I forgot what movie it was. Apparently this guy had lived, lived such a life. You talk about, you talk about some of the actors who got roles because of who they were in real life. And, you know, tons of those in short eyes. Uh, but apparently he lost all his teeth. He, all yeah. his teeth were knocked out by a, by pistol whipping, I assume. So yeah. he had to have all his teeth replaced, right. which is amazing. Uh, yeah. Mike Kellen, just before dawn, uh, riot. I love him in freebie and the bean, just a heavy, just heavy jowly character. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. he was a veteran, uh, gravelly voice, the kind of guy that would make me like a lot of modern movies if they had guys like him in it. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting thing is Dominic Chianese, um, plays Mendoza and he of course is best known perhaps as junior on the Sopranos, but um, really in a contrast with what, uh, with what the New Yorican poets, Pinheiro and so forth and, and Michael Young were doing uh, Michael Young, Robert Young. Um, he, he plays a character named Mendoza, which he, he's actually committing one of the, one of the, one of the sins, or I should say, this movie commits one of the sins that that these guys uh, who made short eyes and a lot of the um, a lot of the 
you know, Latino artists of the time, Latinx artists of the time were pushing against. And that is that is the wrong character, the wrong ethnic types playing Latinos, yeah. uh, even though it's a great performance. Um, he's just another old character and he looks, I mean, it, it's really good to see him. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard, heard, um, him sing. He, he's actually a really no. accomplished singer. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. has a whole career as a singer out, alongside his acting. Uh, JC Quinn is in this, another veteran of a bunch of, uh, a bunch of movies, a bunch of prison movies. Um, really, really strong characteristics. He's in animal factory. Uh, he's in prayer for the roller prayer of the roller boys. Uh, Great movie he with pops Hansen. up. Yep. The <laughs> abyss. He's in Barfly. Uh, he's in, uh, he's one of the hoods in at close range, a hell of a, hell of a strong eighties movie. You know, Barfly is one that has evaded me as well. So if you have a copy of that, I would, I do, it. I do. Yeah, uh, I, I've been dying to see that. And every time just nobody, it's out of print and it just seems like no distributor has picked it up and I'm dying to see that movie. I'll come over in a hermetically sealed suit and we'll watch it. Um, (laughs) He's also in maximum overdrive. Um, But uh, Eddie Jones is uh, plays one of the captains. Eddie Jones is everywhere uh, from like, he's in sneakers. He's in uh, the new kids. He's one of these characters. He's one of these heavier set round face uh, character actors. I did it again. So supporting it, supporting actors. He's in <laughs> as well. Hector Troy, who plays Gasolino, uh, is also in the super cops. One of my favorites, um, yeah. uh, kind of, it kind of feels like a TV movie, but he, he has a, a small role in that. He's also in badge 373 badge. 373 is an interesting film also based on the Eddie Egan stories, Eddie Egan being alongside uh, Sonny Grasso and Randy Jurgensen, the three, three of the cops who really worked on the original French Connection case that the movie was based on. Mm-hmm. Badge 373 is, is Robert Duvall playing an Eddie Egan-type character. It has a huge subplot that has to do with Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican um, politics and Puerto Ricans in New York City at the time, including like a, a salsa concert. Uh, that's one of those movies that uh, shows one of the interesting realities that, 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 that I you know, put together growing up in our area in the 80s is that a lot of the people who were politically active, a lot of the Puerto Ricans who were politically active in the Young Lords in the 70s yeah. became New York City area newscasters in the hmm. 80s. Um, yeah, interestingly enough. Uh, the great Joe Grafasi, another yes. great actor who plays Morris, the character who is the you know the shut-in who's who's uh he's sewing uh the uh the hot air balloon. I'm yeah. sure you'll get to that. But uh, he's in tons of stuff, but I will always remember him as the second police uh the the the, the second in the police to uh, Brian Dennehy in FX. He's fantastic yeah. in that. There's Still one of the night splash Bruce sure. millions. I remember him actually as a kid. I I remember seeing him oddly enough in uh, 1995's Batman Forever where he played like a a secure, you know, a, a bank guard that uh, Tommy Lee Jones's Two-Face has uh, yep. kidnapped and uh, Val Kilmer's Batman has to save him. In the opening scene, it's a very big number with a bank vault going through, you know, the city's, you know, the city skyline and stuff. It's ridiculous. And, uh, yeah, he he's he's a great face and a hell of a he, – he's had a good career um, as a New York City actor. Interestingly enough, Richie uh, – Richard Hayes, who uh, uh, Wade refers to as Richie – is also in FX. Richie Hayes plays the young punk who becomes the heavy after Gasolino is out of the picture in this movie. 
those are only two movies he's in, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the one of the movies, a corollary to this, it took me a long time to find a bootleg of this. But um, speaking of J.C. Quinn, and uh, in the in the cycle of prison movies, this is, I think this is actually a post-prison movie. It's very, very heavy uh, drama, I think, about guys who are out of prison and th th there's drug addiction in this. Uh, 79 uh, independent feature called by a Latino director um, whose name escapes me right now called Night Flowers. Um, oh. Jose, Jose Perez is in Night Flowers along okay. with J.C. Quinn and another character actor who I, I think he must have been a Broadway actor. Uh, Lazaro Perez, not related to, to, to Jose Perez. Lazaro Perez is a Cuban actor, a Cuban-American actor who is in Fortune in Men's Eyes, the 1971 prison movie. So a lot of these character actors got similar work. Yeah. Which is against. A lot of these actors got good. Got, <laughs> That's strike see, three for you, sir. Well, you, you know, <laughs> again, I'm going to quote another Mike McPadden podcast, but it, like, it, it's, um, it's a good question. Yeah. It's a good question that Pat Haley poses. He doesn't. He's this is this guy's been acting since I think the late '80s. He doesn't know what character actor means. Right. You know, these are just actors. I don't know. I, it's almost like de a demeaning term. So I just want to refer to these as the actors I care about. You know, yeah. Um, yeah nice that, that goes without saying that this is like the heart and soul of I eat movies is just caring for these kind of you know perhaps underappreciated, but these are the people that make movies for us yeah yeah i mean like i i'm not attracted to like the tom cruises or the sly stallones or whoever it's yeah. like the guys i know who are doing the heavy lifting i'm curious you know i care about the vincent schiavelli's you know yeah. for instance right. uh the, the larry <laughs> hankins uh and 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 so on but uh yeah night flowers is an interesting one that a couple of these guys are also into so um back to yeah. you Definitely a, a loaded cast. I mean, just really, really great familiar faces and just uh, great performances. Um, again, we've we've established that Juleson is this inmate who's been around for several years and now he's indebted to Chili, who's sort of this head honcho on the yard. You know, he, he's got, like I said, prison guards in his pocket. He, he runs bets and what have you. But there is um, another subplot brewing in this film, and it involves uh, Lane Smith's character, Captain Blake. Uh, he's a pretty with it uh, captain on the yard and it becomes very um, clear that he's absolutely positive that Chili is responsible for you know kind of poisoning his yard and he makes moves to remove him from the population but of, is of course turned down from it and I think that that's a theme that I want to talk about a little bit in this film um, there's a theme of kind of like obedience being shattered in particularly for the characters trying to do right. So, you know, naturally Juleson sticks to himself and he tries best to pay Chili back. But when threatened, Juleson refuses to take it lying down, uh, going after Gasolino, who you mentioned played by uh, the great Hector Troy, um, who is an inmate who is tasked with roughing um, Juleson up on the yard. And it results in, um, Gasolino getting shot in the process and landing Juleson in solitary confinement, which he completely takes in stride and refuses to snitch. He And he makes it clear when he's put into solitary confinement and then he sat down with, uh, I believe it's just somebody from the prison, like a, another captain of, of some sort, um, you know, just saying, you know, uh, Captain Blake or anybody, you know, th they're willing, you know, to do anything to help you in exchange for 
information, which as we know, I think anybody that's seen the most rudimentary prison film or know anything about prison is, you know, snitches get yeah. stitches, obviously. That's J.C. Quinn, by the way. That's J.C. Quinn. That's J.C. Quinn. Okay, is that character, yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, so, yeah, so he, you know, Juleson makes it firmly established. And again, in a very understated, but it's all in his eyes, He he's very, like, sullen, but he's making it damn clear when question uh when he says you want me to snitch and jc quinn says yeah is there a problem with that and he he very clearly goes yes in here yes <laughs> like, mm -hmm. very clear making you know announcing that more harm will come to him if he does snitch um you know like i said captain blake is very aware from the get-go here that chili is poisoning the yard um to the point where uh you know Juleson's, um refusal to snitch and then, you know, eventually, uh, you know, his eventual murder in this film at the hands of another inmate, Stick, uh, played mm -hmm. by Richie Hayes, again, working under Chili's orders, uh, prompts Blake now to kind of just, you know, rip his gloves off and revert to prison rules, if you will. He takes Chili to the basement of the prison and he has several guards bash his head in with a telephone book, which mm -hmm. again, we've said before, this is not a flashy film. It's not a particularly sleazy film. It kind of avoids any part of the sexuality in, in, uh, in prison life. But this film is easily the most punishing of the film is just this brutal thing where, you know, Captain Blake kind of, you know, demonstrates and showcases the whole runtime. He's trying to do right. He's trying to do the right thing to get this one guy who seems to be poisoning the yard off of it. And when that doesn't happen and it results in Juleson's, you know, tragic murder, which shouldn't have been a murder, you know, Chili ordered uh, Stick to kind of rough him up. And obviously that gets out of hand and results in Juleson's death. So when Blake sees that he's not going to get it, you know, you know, kind of riding the, the straight and narrow, he reverts to kind of just roughing uh, Chili up. And from that point, Chili ordering this murder, we really see his empire kind of crumble. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the reviews I read about this, uh, I, I put it out, you know, put it very plainly in terms of, uh, um, Juleson makes J J Juleson makes a mistake and miscalculation. Chili makes a, a mistake and a miscalculation. Um, looking at the commerce of this, just in sheer commerce terms, it's like it's it's almost like these guys are doing some kind of business, and they each of them screwed up. So then another corporation, another entity, it, Blake, the, you, you know, the the prison head has to come in and correct things. But right. who survives it and who keeps going? speaks to who is best skilled at this level of commerce, whether it's the business of hiring people to beat people up. And that's another miscalculation because stick is not supposed to kill anybody. Right. Uh, and he, and he does, he, you know, which again, that's a power move in prison. Cause maybe what we don't see, maybe stick becomes uh, a, a, a force to be feared um, in, in, in this ecosystem. But we, we, what then happens, you know, getting a little further ahead, what then happens is that Chile actually loses rank. Uh, Juleson is taken off the count, and he's the first person. He's gone. He's, but he's the first person killed in years there. Yeah, it's and like then, four years, yeah. Yeah, and then, um, and, and then uh, the, the Lane Smith character, um, who's – I'm forgetting his name. Um, he he has – yeah, he then has to be corrected by the warden above him. So it's like there's a natural order of these things, and they all have to kind of work. And that's why it just seems like regular commerce, just basic business. And if, and if things get out of order, there has to be some correction, but the ball keeps bouncing. And it has to get back to that, that equilibrium, if you will. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and that that's really, especially once we get to the conclusion of this film, which we will get to, that theme really uh, is driven home. Um, I just want to talk a little bit um, to the shortcomings of this film. Uh, so this sequence, or this subplot rather, um, although it's played razor straight, there's a subplot involving Morris... Um, the Joe Gravasi character uh, mm-hmm. that involves him stitching and building his own hot air balloon to escape during the film's climax. You know, this thing, it's admittedly silly. And it, I think personally, it takes away from the gravity of Juleson's murder and, and Chili's, you know, dwindling status as head honcho on the yard. Um, however, as much as I think that this is a bit silly, uh, this sequence, uh, specifically when Chili and Red are assisting him during this mo- moment, it does further cement the core of all three of their characters. Um, the hot air balloon was, you know, Morrison's uh, invention and means of escape, but he's admittedly too afraid to leave his con- confines which I think is really indicative of how glued he is to Chili much of the film. He's always looking to Chili for, you know, assistance, for advice. He's kind of like his, you know, his guiding light there. So I think, you know, now that he's he's got the opportunity to uh, leave, uh, it frightens him. And now he's sort of, uh, you know, he's at this point where he, he can't leave. So he, he decides, you know, he, he's, he's fearful of it now. That is an interesting point in the film. I, I think I think the idea of him, you know, secretly, you know, being the being the character who has a secret uh, project, and you know, the idea of of of, of the um, of the higher balloon. I think it, you know, it works as a device to show uh, a little more of humanity, the opportunity for a sense of joy. Uh, even in this character who's really shown as the weak one, Stick beats him up. Obviously, he'll do whatever, even though he does ask things of Chili, the Morris character will do whatever. He will definitely be pushed around. He's one of the weaker members, but he does have some level of vision. That said, or some element of hope, you know, like the, 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 the a prison, these are dark movies, both of them, but they both have a certain level of humanity and a certain level of hope. And I think that's what that that uh passage really does uh it, it shows that these are still well re- these are still human beings they still have some capacity for um some kind of uh forgive the pun uplift but morris knows that his you know morris knows his station and, and i think it speaks to the idea of having of, of dreaming of having a dream and how you engage that and 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 he knows that his station is to stay in prison and he doesn't have as much as he has all the acumen and all the awareness, he's not fully formed in the way that he he, could, he has the guts also to be the one that Red is to get onto the hot air balloon. But I see how it, I can understand what you mean by it being silly, but I think it actually serves a, a purpose in humanizing um, in humanizing these characters. All right, yeah, definitely. Um, just going back. Uh... Of course, I kind of mentioned the silliness of kind of the hot air balloon thing. But again, in this sequence where Chili and Red are helping Morris along, again, I I, I said that it's demonstrating something about the core of each of these characters. Um, Obviously, we've we've established that Morris is too fearful to go. I think that's indicative of this kind of attachment that he's grown with the place and is fearful of the outside world. Meanwhile, Chili just rejects the escape seat as he knows – you know, he's nobody without prison. It's very I, clear. I like this, by the way. I'm sorry to, just to cut in here. Yeah. Uh, I, I like this exchange. You know, Grafasi is holding the gas 
and he's firing the gas and he, he closes the valve and he says, I, 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 I can't, I can't do it. He has the realization, but he knows his place and he knows the role. Like the stating of the roles is, is, a, is a moment of honesty. And, yeah. and obviously honesty is actually like a, a liability in prison. He goes, I, you know, I just can't. Chili goes, that ain't me, you know, because yeah. he knows, he knows what he is. And then Red and again, this speaks to the old guy maybe having more wisdom, um, but we know what you know what happens uh, in the long run. He just goes, "I'll ride the fucker," and then yeah. you know, like, like so, we could just say that this scene supplies some good dialogue, and then of course the classic, you know, uh, Morris just goes, "Adios, motherfuckers." Yeah, perfect, it, perfect. It, it's great, and and that's really this what movie it needed an adios, motherfuckers. So yeah. that's what this, you know. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it does break the tension a little bit, but it, and it is a little silly the idea of a hot air balloon, but um, but maybe maybe that's indicative of how you know what what's the term the audacity of hope, you know yeah. maybe that's the, maybe that's the, the the depiction of 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 how important and maybe also how irreverent the idea of having hope in this situation is yeah and again it's fitting that it comes down to red who just says he'll ride it because he was the one that really showed like a true desire for life outside um the yard but you know as he kind of rides off into the sunset or or the moonlight really here um you know it would seem like a good place to end the film but it it doesn't it really concludes six months later with um red's return to prison and he kind of comes back sort of boasting about his run i believe i think he's on the lamb for like six months and um you know it, it it seems like he's he comes back with a smile and this jovial sense and now that they can you know chili's empire has crumbled you know and whatnot and they're they're you know there's obviously always somebody else to take his spot as kind of like the head yeah tate the don blakely character well what i do like is he comes in with a bit of that swagger he warmly he wore you know he he doesn't embrace him but he grabs him on the shoulder chili uh and then red just says yeah you know i wrote it for like six months but you know the fact is i couldn't find a place for myself out there it wasn't like what i remembered it was and then chill and chili responds it never is and then and then they just admit well we got some time to do we do have that. Yeah. And that's just I like, love I love that ending. I think that's yeah. so like yeah, maybe it's bleak. Maybe if you expect a prison movie to always involve a breakout and a triumph finish and, and it's you know, maybe then it's just kind of like blah. But yeah. I like that. I like that idea that the ball keeps bouncing. Like if you're if a movie is telling me that life is in progress, it's it like that's not a bad thing, you yeah. know. Even if it's prison life, it's just, you know, well, this happened and that happened and the balloon and yeah, but we're still here, you know? Yeah. So like, I kind of like that continuity piece. Yeah. And again, it's, it's, it's an, it's a way to demonstrate really that like old habits die hard and prison life is as much tied to red as it was to Chile. You know, maybe he just didn't know it so much at the time, but it is, you know, in a weird way, again, it's all about perspective. These, you know, these films are kind of showing us a culture that, you know, we otherwise would not ever find ourselves in hopefully. Um, but, you know, in a way you can look at it as like a hopeful place, you know, uh, Red kind of indicates that he just couldn't find a place for himself. So he came back to really the only home that he knows. And although, you know, they are incarcerated and behind bars, like 
he's respected here. He has friends here. Like, you know, there is a sense of community here, although that there is, you know, a hierarchy and politics and whatnot. But again, this film overall, it, it's, it's the commerce that you were talking about. It's about the monotony of, uh, of prison life. Um, that too is also very Shawshank needless to say. Yeah. The idea of like, I couldn't make it out there. So I came back. Yeah, but exactly. And it's, and it's, it's interesting too. It's just like, it, it's this hustle and bustle of the wheels keep turning um, mm-hmm. at, at a prison, you know, even when, you know, going back to the beginning of the film, you know, when James Remar's character is, you know, stabbed in the armpit on the yard and Juleson's murder, it's really no more than like a blip on these inmates' radar. It's sort of like raised eyebrows for a moment and then it's sort of, you know, back to business, you know, even even so much with uh, Chili's, you know, fall from grace that we've mentioned, you know, with a new ringleader at the helm instead of Chili, it, you know, the faces may change, but the gears and the hustles that make prison life turn will continue it's like you know here one minute gone the next but time still carries on for everyone else who's doing hard time oh yeah oh yeah definitely Definitely. so uh, yeah it's 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 a really good little movie you know it's it i won't say it's a unique take on prison films but in the way that they uh the silvers i mean mostly joan i suppose but this is you know one of the two times he directed and Ray directed the Silvers make really good little movies with characters and and, and depictions of characters that are really easy to attach to and and, and, and get inside of and and I really I you know the the idea maybe maybe this maybe on the yard doesn't quite have the the character relationships focus that uh, Chilly Scenes of Winter or or um, Between the Lines has or 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 crossing delaney but delancey but uh but there's still like there's still some spark there between the characters that's it's kind of distinctively them it's distinctively the silvers yeah for sure and and you know like again like i i think that i uh i think in comparison to our first feature i think that i enjoy on the yard a little bit more than maybe you do um to a sense but uh, again everything that we've talked about kind of rolls into some of the praise that this film got at the time uh, and can be of the New York times held the, hailed the film as intense, superbly acted. He's spot mm-hmm. on there. Uh, meanwhile, Andrew Saris of the village voice, you know, kind of proudly boasted that on the yard stays on my mind with more force and gravity than Clint Eastwood's escape from Alcatraz, which I think is, you know, it, 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 that's a booming compliment to make when, as you mentioned earlier, like escape from Alcatraz is a lot of people's kind of like reference point for a prison movie. So it was clearly hailed in its day. Um, but it's like, you know, it's a thing, you know, prison jo- dramas in general, seem to kind of have their time and place in history and they kind of come and go like other film genres or film cycles. But, uh, you know, these films, they, they take us to dark places that we wouldn't necessarily find ourselves and really deliver these truly compelling emotional, you know, powerhouse dramas with great character work and, you know, just all around great performances. So, yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm so happy that we could have done an episode on two films like Short Eyes and On the Yard that are just so polarizing and stay with you. Heavy indeed, especially in the case of Short Eyes, but, you know, still like really, really thrilling dramas that will stay with you, I think, long after the end credits. 
I agree. I mean, these are both indie prison dramas. Uh, you know, the Silvers form their own their own company. Um, actually, uh, on the advice of Cassavetes, um, yeah. to distribute their movies at the time. And uh, you know, I, I don't know if my if Robert M. Young was was very fond of how the marketing went, but they formed their own company, the Film League, for Short Eyes as well. Um, Maybe the way that they were handled kept these two movies from being recut and exploited in a different fashion. Um, it's hard to say, you know, um, but uh, both of them really maintained very strong dramas for uh, for the prison genre. And I mean, definitely two of the best. Yeah, definitely. D definitely a credit, especially on on the yard. It's a testament to kind of like stick to itiveness and believing in your own material. So, you know it's a good thing that they did kind of, uh, you know, preserve them and present them and have the kind of control that they did have on them or else, you know, we might not have had, you know, a film quite like this or short eyes really. So yeah. Awesome stuff. Dino, we have doubled. Don't, don't, no, 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 no. <laughs> listen, let, let, let people who listen to this, tell us how long it is. They will. So let's not, uh, let's not look at the numbers. Uh, I've enjoyed this. I'm really glad we could do this. Uh, I promise next time we will do something a little bit more upbeat. Uh, we're, we got, we got like 20 different ideas in the works. Yeah. Um, this is, maybe... this is an endless, endless gauntlet of texts of ideas and themes that we're kind of toying with you for you guys. Yes. Hopefully we'll have something, uh, we'll have something for, uh, black history month cause we're still in February and um, please like this podcast. Uh, tell people about it. You could find us on Facebook and on in Instagram. And um, I don't know, man. Eat yeah. more movies. Eat more yeah. movies. That's it. Yeah, keep eating more movies. Again, you know, follow us at uh, I Eat Movies Podcast. You know, we're on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, again, thank you guys so much for the reception to the first episode. Like, we are just completely overwhelmed with that uh keep liking you know subscribing please leave your feedback we got two great reviews on apple Podcasts that were so kind and uh awesome it, it definitely inspires us to keep going and uh look at that we did <laughs> we have continued so yeah thanks guys um you know we'll see you again like dino said we're gonna try and have something special uh in theme for black history month uh so stay tuned you know stay tuned for the social media channels for an update on that but again uh dino thanks man for spending uh doing hard time with me we done did it good we stuff did it. Oh, adios yeah. motherfuckers yeah we'll see you next time guys thank you adios motherfuckers